This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, January the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. It gives a shout in the queue and on the air. The topic entirely up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So a bit of a chilly day here on top. But boy, the forecast of temperatures for Lab West in particular today, minus 47 with the wind chill. Of course, that means serious risk of frostbite. Keep your pets inside, all the rest of minus 47. Uh, the Growlers, real struggle on the road, playing against the Norfolk Admirals over the weekend. Three games set. They got one point, went to overtime on Friday night, dropped the next two contests. So not a great weekend for them, but a best kind of weekend for the Newfoundland Rogues. The basketball team of course, playing some semi-pro ball at the Mary Brown Center. Para wins against the Jamestown Jackals, won both Friday and Saturday night. And of course, the kid Armani Chani, who everyone, Chaney, who everyone seems to love. He had 29 points, 9 assists in Saturday's victory, won 20-98. The KW Kitchener-Waterloo Titans come to town for Thursday. All right. Congratulations to Maggie Connor. Scored her first goal for the Toronto franchise in the Professional Women's Hockey League. So good for her. She was player of the game for the very first game of that particular professional league. So she tied it up 2-2. Toronto went down to win it in a 4-3 shootout victory. Maggie hits the scoreboard with her first professional goal. Terrific. Speaking of scoring, I don't know. You probably know who Kale McCarr is. If you watch the NHL, you definitely do. He's a Norris Trophy winner. Of course, plays with the Colorado Avalanche. He had an assist the other night to give him 300 points in his career. Second fastest defenseman to record 300 points. He did it in 280 games. The fastest to get to 300? Bobby Orr. How many games? 279. Just one fewer than McCarr. So that's pretty impressive company to be keeping for Kale McCarr. And good on the folks, Marble Mountain. The snowstorm, which is a double-edged sword. You know, it really slowed things down. Lots of confusion about schools remaining open while other businesses were closed but it allowed the business of Marble Mountain to open over the weekend. Not fully open just yet but for the snowboard riders and the skiers some 500 of them were there in the morning for the first chair at 9 so Marble up and running. There you go. Alright Dave Williams big football fan as we steamroll towards the Super Bowl the conference championships the matchups are set it was on this date in 1984 that Apple introduced Macintosh computer during the Super Bowl. One of those famous ads was actually the uh, Reminiscent of 1984, and it, uh, it aired in 1984. So there you go. The price of a spot, a 30-second ad in the Super Bowl. This year, CBS says they virtually sold out all of the content, all the spots for the Super Bowl, up to $7 million per 30 seconds. Pretty pricey piece of airtime. All right. So also an interesting one. On this date in 1970, the world's first jumbo jet, a Boeing 747, a maiden voyage on a Pan Am flight from uh, New York's Kennedy to London's Heathrow. Six and a half hours was the flight, and Boeing is in the news. See those Boeing Max 9s that have been grounded, some 171 of them? You probably saw the story where one of the doors blew open mid-flight on an Alaska Airlines uh, trip. So only Alaska Airlines and United actually have these aircraft in play. I only mention it because it's not only in the news, but a buddy of mine was uh, scheduled to take one of those United flights in the U.S. I can't remember where he was going, but thousands of flights got delayed. And just imagine, that Alaska aircraft, that was only eight weeks old. 
when the door blew open mid-flight. Then I saw a story where an elderly man who apparently was in some sort of crisis attempted to open the door on a, uh, an Air Canada flight. So no charges were laid, but can you imagine being on the aircraft, how unsettling it must be to see the staff try to rein in someone who's trying to open the door mid-flight? Anyway, I don't know if that's of any interest to you, but we can take it on. Last week, we talked about some of the aftermath of the attack at PwC. So a 16-year-old attack with weapons, attempted murder charges were laid. Two teens have been sentenced. They pled to the lesser, uh, lesser charge. One got 24 months, the other got 18 months. But then what is going on in Mount Pearl? You hear these stories over the weekend and really quite severe and apparently just random. So the RNC are looking for more information about an attack that occurred on January 16th outside the Reed Center in Mount Pearl. It really does look and feel like it's random. We had a couple of emails coming from folks who say they are from Mount Pearl and have heard some rumbles in their community about what's going on here. Some social media references made to something called the Mount Pearl Death Squad. Mayor Dave Akers, you know, encouraging the community to speak with your family members, especially your children, about what's going on. Maybe try to how to deal with the fear and maybe some tips for how to protect yourself. But there has been arrests made, and Constable Cadigan with the RNC isn't speaking or commenting on the name that's been associated with this group, this gang. But the insinuation is, is that there is something afoot regarding organized kids with one of the requirements to get into this particular stupidly named group uh, is to have a random beatdown handed out. Boy, oh boy. So if you're in Mount Pearl, especially Mayor Dave Baker, if you're listening this morning, want to chime in on what's happening in your community, we'll be happy to take it on. But in reference to that PWC assault, look, again, inside the walls of the school, we're hearing more and more troubling stories of student-on-student violence, student-on-teacher violence, and we still don't know if there's been any attention given to security on school grounds, playgrounds, and parking lots, what have you, given what we saw at PwC. It'll be interesting to know exactly what's going on here. The incidents regarding violence, violent outbursts, is really changed in the recent past. You know, I've read some news stories and I've brought them to your attention here about how they're doing not just anecdotal evidence about the numbers of stories we're hearing like this, but trying to make some links and understand exactly what's going on. You know, university researchers in Montreal have been doing brain scans on teenagers, you know, especially when they talk about the numbers of hours they spend in front of social media, what it means for anxiety, depression, and yes, violent outbursts. Not trying to be scaring people about this stuff, but you hear the stories as much as I do. And there is something on go that is really hard to put a finger on, but those stories coming from Pearl last week, that's really quite troubling, to say the very least. All right, let's keep going. So there was some <clears throat> pretty significant backlash aimed at Loblaws when they talked about moving away from a 50% discount to a 30% discount when a product is meeting its expiry date. Now, there's a lot to that. You know, best before dates versus what actually means an expiry date. But here's the major league problem. Of course, Loblaws was just, you know, checking the temperature in the room. See if they could get away with it. It hadn't happened in Atlantic Canada, and nor will it happen in Atlantic Canada. But other parts of the country, they had, that, they had made that move to 30%. Now, they say it's going to take weeks to get back to the process or the policy of 50%. But here's the problem for, for me. is with the prices anyway inside the grocery store and the potential for price manipulation, 
How do you even know whether or not the 50% sticker even represents a legitimate 50% off? It just really does feel like it's so random and arbitrary. You can go in and buy a pack of chicken today, go in tomorrow to buy the same product and it's $2 more, go in to buy the same product that's $3 less. So it's really kind of hit and miss about when you do indeed uh, purchase one item or another. So does it allow for Loblaws to, in essence, hoodwink people by having the price pretty high leading up to the date where the 50% sticker is going to be applied and then when it comes to it they've already had an increase that represents 10-15% over what they were selling that product for a week prior so the 50 is a feel good and yes of course for people who are price conscious which I would imagine is most Canadians it's a welcome return but Loblaw's playing a little bit of a Pierre game here potentially if you want to bring forward that issue we can talk about that of course we can and so, talking about food prices and pressures. So, the federal liberal co- uh, cabinet is in retreat in Montreal beginning today. And so, the obvious issues will be on the agenda. Affordability issues, of course, and that's all encompassing. And it does include food and whatever the government thinks that they can do or should do or might do about stabilizing food prices. Then they go on to talk about housing. We can dig a lot further into the housing numbers. The federal government and housing minister, Sean Fraser, has spoken pretty clearly on the fact that, yes, with temporary foreign workers and international students and immigration in full, it has put an immense amount of pressure on the housing market. But yet, at the exact same time, acknowledging what's happening in the country, and I don't think it's simply about immigration where we see the housing issue that has reared its really unfortunate pricey head in the recent past, but when they acknowledge those numbers, yet refuse to do anything about it, it's just a head-scratcher. Like, if you are understanding, acknowledging, speaking to the pressures in the market, then would it not be wise to pump the brakes while we try to get control of the housing issue? Stance to reason, that would be quite wise, politically speaking and realistically speaking. In addition to that, of course, one of the key items to be discussed, and apparently quote-unquote experts have been brought in to talk about the middle class, middle class pressures. Here's the problem for me. Who are the middle class? Like, every party is going to be talking about trying to covet and woo the vote of the middle class voters in the country. I have no earthly idea what the middle class means any longer. Folks who were in the middle class a decade ago are no longer in it. Unless your lot in life and the amount of money you bring in the door has changed dramatically over the course of 10 years, you have probably fallen out of the middle class. So while they will use that term without any actual definition... And I know you can't have a firm black and white definition that is, you know, the be all and end all set in stone, but it would be helpful to know exactly who we're talking about these days when the whole reference to the middle class, which you assume would be a large portion of the country. But I think the definition has changed a lot in the past 10 years. So, yes, you can talk about the middle class and middle class needs and wants and pressures. But unless we know exactly who we're talking about, this not really makes a whole lot of sense. All right. So advanced polling starts today for the pending by-election at Conception Bay, East Bell Island. We know there's four candidates, Tina Neri, Kimberly Churchill, Fred Hutton, and Daryl Harding. So there's three locations that where you can take advantage of the advanced polling. So it's the Avalon Karate Club, the Royal Canadian Legion on Portion of Cove St. Phillips, and St. Michael's Parish on Bell Island. Polls are open from 8 to 8, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So we know it's been a Tory stronghold for some 20 years, and Mr. Brazel stepping down has opened the door for this potential for this particular by-election. We have spoken to all of the candidates at least once, and you know they'll speak to the big high-level issues, and of course that would be 
part and parcel with running as a candidate, you have to be able to speak to the big issues. But if you're a resident in Portugal Cove St. Phillips, or pardon me, anywhere inside the voting district or Conception Bay, East Bell Island, and you'd like to talk about what's important to you and whether or not you've heard enough from the candidates on these very local issues, then we're happy to have that type of conversation here today. A couple of quick ones. This is the stuff that, you know, it's random, but it's in some measure frustrating. So there's an industry standard across the country that when and if someone calls for an ambulance and there's not one available, it's called a red alert. And those numbers are counted and they have to be understood. It's not the paramedics fault. Let's get that out of the way. The paramedics are doing their level best to attend to the needs of the general public when they're called upon. So there's a variety of reasons as to why those red alerts happen. But here's where it becomes frustrating. And this comes from uh, NAEP President Jerry Earle. Apparently, the emergency responders have been directed to not use the term red alert any longer. Why? Who knows? But it's one of those things where government gets caught up in the minutia of the words being chosen. Now, words are important. Words have distinct meaning. But the industry standard is red alert. So I don't know why that has been an initiative taken by any administrator or any level of government to get down to, as opposed to trying to improve the issue, period, to reduce the number of red alerts, to tell folks that as emergency responders, you can't use the term, we're going to use it because it's industry standard and people understand what it means. All the while, it's still unknown exactly what the world of ambulance services is going to look like here in the province. It's been taking forever. It was one of the only real piece of news that came out of the most recent provincial budget, the amalgamation or the consolidation of some 60 different contracts. Uh, consultants brought in to the tune of three consulting companies were brought in. RFP gone out to see what private organization would like to engineer, design, and manage air and ground ambulance. But I hear from paramedics virtually every single day, and they have the same concerns that are yet to be focused in on. So yes, we can see how it's all going to work. There are concerns about the privatization of the air ambulance service, which, and I don't know why that needs to be the case. The province apparently has been told or advised that they should not be in the business of buying and operating fixed-wing aircraft or helicopters, and there will be more helicopters used in the air service. But no red alert? Yes, red alert. Red alerts happen, and we have to understand them. They need to be counted so that we can hold government to account to see what is being done to reduce the number of emergencies that might not get the attention in the time required. So I don't know why they've been told they can't say it, but we'll say it on their behalf. All right, how are we doing out there, Dave? A couple of quick ones before we get to your calls. All right. So we know that there's long been a branding exercise by the federal liberals regarding what they called an Atlantic Loop. And we really have never had a firm understanding. We know that the cost has exploded from initially some maybe $3 billion to now potentially $9 billion. The province of Nova Scotia has pulled out in full. They say the cost of onshore wind and additional solar to try to decarbonize their grid is much cheaper done with those two avenues versus power from Hydro-Quebec. They also go on to say that there's no guarantee of Hydro-Quebec providing the power. So somewhere in the neighborhood, well over 50% of the power generated in Nova Scotia comes from coal-fired or coke-fired generation. So I don't know how quickly they can decommission those plants. And the reason I bring it up is because that issue regarding no guarantee of confirmed power from Hydro-Quebec 
some interesting things happening in Quebec. And, of course, they will all have an impact on this province because currently we don't really know the status of negotiations with Hydro-Quebec, whether it be on Muskrat, Gull, 2041, or whatever the case may be. But because of the needs inside that province, they now have a bill being tabled to allow businesses to sell to other businesses who generate electricity in the province of Quebec. Read a couple things further. Okay. Allowing the business the business sale of electricity would help Quebec in the context of a lack of electricity for industrial development projects, according to a research firm, the Montreal Economic Institute. Here's one of the quotes. Hydro-Quebec does not have the electric supply needed to meet the demand of Quebec's development. Uh, by allowing independent electricity producers to sell directly to business, Quebec would make sure Hydro's lack of electricity doesn't prevent pro- provincial development. So, here's some numbers. Hydro-Quebec would only have 500 megawatts of capacity available for industrial development by 2028. By contrast, the projects presented by companies interested in investing in Quebec would need more than 30,000 megawatts of capacity. So the ability for Hydro-Quebec could only add about 8,000 to 9,000 megawatts of capacity by 2035 at a cost of about $90 billion. What does that mean to us? A lot. Because we know there's well in excess of 5,000 megawatts at the Upper Churchill, we know the potential at Gull, and you got to believe that some part of the conversation between the two provinces, some 2,225 megawatts right there, and while there is that type of industrial need and investment, does that not give us another arrow in our quiver to talk about wooing investment of the, by those companies in this province with access to power, especially if Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec is playing some form of hardball inside of these hydro negotiations? I'm thinking and I'm hearing some little rumbles that we're going to hear something sooner than later on that particular file. That coming from someone who I think has their finger on the pulse in that province and in Ottawa. So we'll see what happens right there. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show that requires your participation. So pick up the phone, give us a shout in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the president of NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listening audience. Welcome to the program. So I spoke to this off the top of the show this morning, but the the emergency responders have been told that they can't use the term red alert. What's happening? Unfortunately, that seems to be a PR stunt uh, that was done some time ago, actually, because anyone that's listening in on different types of devices for scanning, they would commonly hear the term red alert, including media, and they would pay significant attention to it. Sometime back, the director was given that staff were not actually allowed to use that. Uh, it is an industry standard term that's used across the country. Uh, you look at in Alberta, for example, they still talk about red alerts when they have uh, unavailability of units. So the issues still exist, uh, still placing immense pressure on our EMS personnel uh, right across the province and specifically in the metro region. So if we're not using the term, how is that going to compromise the ability to add up how many times a red alert situation does happen? Because if we don't hear the term, then things get quite murky and muddy as a result. It's hard to know exactly what's happening and be able to hold government to account for the number of red alerts that we do, do indeed experience. Actually, Patty, and that's what it does. It takes the attention from it because there was something about the terminology that people paid attention to, that metro region was in red alert or Conception Bay North was in red alert. Uh, but now they're into using terminology around 
called response time availability or reliability, and most people don't pay attention to that. Uh, here in the metro region, for example, things have not improved, and I think it was VOCM report the other day, and that's how it came to light again, uh, where it was a call from another emergency service seeking the assistance of an ambulance, and the response went back over the public airwaves, uh, sorry, no ambulance is available, could not say we're in red alert, uh, So, but luckily, in this case, uh, the media certainly picked up on that, reached out, and we can unfortunately say uh, the situation has not improved, and the response time reliability that they now depend upon uh, demonstrates that. Air Metro, for example, uh, only 44% of the time, using their data, uh, do we have an ambulance arrive on scene in less than nine minutes. 44% of the time, less than nine minutes in Metro region. Uh, so you can imagine if you're into a medical emergency, uh, only 44 calls of 100 is an ambulance getting there in less than nine minutes. What do we understand are the most significant contributing factors to red alerts? There's a host of things, uh, and some have been worked on. Uh, still, it goes back to uh, offload delays in our emergency department. I know there's efforts being made now to expand that, but today we still have offload delay where you can have three, five ambulances, and what that means to the people listening is there's an ambulance at one of our emergency departments with a patient needing care under stretcher, but they cannot remove that person to stretcher because no bed to place them in. Then it comes back to the number of actual units available. We call, refer to them as trucks or people in the industry, but the actual ambulances available, uh, there is still not a sufficient number, though there's been an increase. And then it comes down to the human resource personnel having sufficient, and in the case of Metro Region, it'd be uh, PCPs or ACPs available uh, to have persons on those trucks. So it's a combination of things that is leading to the situation we are. Uh, it has a an immediate impact, obviously, on the person that's waiting for or looking for an ambulance. But you can only imagine the impact it's having on these emergency personnel. Uh, it's affecting their mental health because there is nothing worse knowing that you're hearing a call that you are needed and you know you cannot respond. So this places immense pressure and stress upon the staff providing these services. Do we have any status update regarding the RFP that's gone out for the integration road and air ambulance service? Well, what's happened now, as you know, is they have extended it from January 22nd to April the 1st. Uh, if anything coming out of this patty, so we won't know until April 1st who the proponent is that's going to be managing the integrated road ambulance system for the entire province. I'm certainly hoping that this will be somebody now to place a dedicated effort on emergency services. That hasn't existed because in some cases it was part of the responsibility for some people managing. And this is a bit dated, but I can go back to a day when I worked, approached the CEO in an hospital and said the situation we're having that particular day, she looked at me and said, well, you're no different than, different than Force Out A. And I said, ma'am, if you don't understand the difference between EMS and Force Out A, we have a major problem because you cannot compare in-facility health care to external care. So that's one thing I'm hoping they'll commit to this. I, I applaud that move, move into an integrated system that will be managed. Uh, I'm open then we look at the problems that we have there uh, and it won't be part of somebody else's problem. So, but again, that's not at least till April the 1st before we know who the proponent is. And I'm assuming then, Patty, uh, the way things move, 
uh, it will be some months after that before they actually take up the actual management of the EMS system. Was there or were there any amendments to the RFP or simply a time extension? Time extension is some things that we brought to their attention, like I'll just give you an example. One, I couldn't believe that a request for proposal out that was going to lessen a service in the case of an air ambulance going from a single port uh, down to a single port for, from a double port. And when we brought that to their attention, they didn't realize it. So what it was, they would only be able to transport one patient versus two in an air ambulance. Uh, there's some other slight modifications made, but that was one that was made to correct, uh, that would lessen the service to Newfoundlanders Labradorians. Uh, and unfortunately, at this point in time, we won't know what the interest is, uh, who the potential opponents are until at least April the 1st. I know, I understand there's been some engagement uh, with some proponents uh, indicating interest. But again, we have this period of time now uh, when we don't know who is going to be managing and we need to have those conversations with put an EMS system in this province that, number one, addresses the needs of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and secondly, addresses the needs of the women men that deliver the service, because that hasn't been met for a very long time. Uh, last one before we let you go. So we hear stories about the predicament that inmates at Her Majesty's Penitentiary find themselves in. Many people, for a variety of reasons, don't seem to be too concerned. But what about for staff, for the correctional officers in particular? You know, number one, when we talked about the lack of visit there was issues regarding mold and all the rest of it. But then I'm also told that the staffing shortage is also associated with the numbers of correctional officers on leave, some of it for extended leave. Give us a staff update. Actually, quite true. Uh, unfortunately, most people don't pay attention uh, to the adverse effects on correctional officers because they look at, well, I always hear comments, well, what do you expect inmates expect the hotel to stay in? What I always go back and say, well, we, what we expect is a working environment that is safe for correctional officers. The adverse effect uh, on correctional officers, you're absolutely correct. We have officers off today that have sustained either physical or mental health injuries because of the work environment that they're placed in, especially at the HMP. That continues today. Now, there has been some work for about six, eight months, whereas we speak today, we have a, a, one group that has graduated, another group that's actually going through a course uh, at Allen College of PI. Hopefully, uh, they will come and we can maintain the staff that we have, but the staff at HMP and other correctional facilities across the province do not get the attention, uh, far from the attention that they require. And like I said, unfortunately, the comments are usually, well, what do you expect inmates? But I always remind people, we have women and men that have to work there, not for a two-year incarcerated period, for a 25 or 30-year career period. And that has to be paid specific attention to. And actually, on that note, we've reached out to the minister now to get update on that request for qualifications, and that's about to happen soon because, unfortunately, that's another delay in the replacement of the facility now with the side of Kitty Vitti. Maybe let's see if I can get more context on the numbers of uh, COs that are off. So what would a full staffing complement be, and how many are actually taken out of that workforce at this moment? Do we know? I wouldn't be able to give you exact numbers. So, like, so some work would be under true workers' comp, some would be sick leave, and that can change. There is not, sometimes we're down by as much as 50%. Uh, so that will give you an idea of numbers involved. Uh, and so that's alarming, like trying to fill a shift. The shift varies, like we will have 24 to 30 officers on shift, say, at the HMP. But when you're airing that we're down by 50%, that means 
staff that are trying to get a day off or whatever are actually now working additional hours above and beyond their own. So that places immense pressure upon them uh, and affects their physical and mental health as well. I appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Patty, and thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Jerry Earl, the president at NAPE. So still... You know, it's not just the impact on those of us who may indeed be the next people to call 911 and need emergency responders to get to where they're going. So when you use the number only 44% in this region, only 44% of the ambulances called arrive in nine minutes or less, so there's a lot to it. And again, without question, especially since we started the show by talking about ambulance services, we'll hear from paramedics today via email. They're weary or loath to speak out, you know, on the public airwaves for a variety of reasons, but their needs and their concerns have been the same for years, and I don't think anything has really changed in an appreciable fashion for those folks. Anyway, if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that, or whatever you want to talk about right after the break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Let's take it more to the PC member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Good morning, yeah. Uh, Patty, I did want to uh, touch on the air ambulance situation. Uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, the uh, decisions of uh, where he put the air ambulance to and whatnot, uh, re- you know, regards to central Newfoundland. Uh, and uh, wondering, you know, what uh, what this really means for response times for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, you know, and the rationale behind it, you know, like... Uh, uh, it's crucial, certainly, if uh, any emergency circumstance to have the response times to be uh, as quick as possible for anyone who needs it, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, whether it's centralized or not, you know, it's, uh, it's just the information and the, and the rationale behind it. So I'm with so many different things happening at breakneck speed. So the air ambulance decision, was it to have it in, located in St. John's? I'm just trying to recall how, how the news story worked. Uh, it's, it's 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 I think it's 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 slated for St. John's area, but uh, you know uh, the rationale would be you know if uh, if Gander did have it, uh, you know the uh, decentralized area you know to get throughout the province in a, in a in a more uh, immediate response time for for the individuals need for the patients that need it, you know uh, whether it's uh, you know would that mean. Uh, would the patients have to be waiting an extra couple of hours to get to get the response times that they need, you know, especially in, in, in crucial circumstances? St. John's would be the destination for the air ambulance flight, so it's a wonder why it wouldn't be centralized in the, uh, you know, just in terms of efficiency and logistics and the time it takes to respond. So I don't really quite understand why it would be in St. John's when, of course, the flights will eventually come to St. John's, where the major hospitals are available. There's another air ambulance concern being voiced by uh, folks on the West Coast, is even when the air ambulance is all figured out, then they will not be able to land in Stephenville. So, you know, it's the longest runway in the province. I don't know if we have a full complement of staff, air traffic controllers, on-the-ground staff, emergency response in place. I think they do. But do you have, do you have any understanding as to why Stephenville's been carved out? Uh, no, that's uh, that's another thing, uh, Patty. You know, it's the uh, you know we, we don't have a big lot of information of, of the rationale actually that's, that's being used or or or, or, or why, what's happening there. You know, that's that's another thing that uh, that we need to know because, like I say, uh, regards to where it's to, you know, like it's uh, it, it has to be the best response for for the uh, for the people of Newfoundland, Labrador, and uh, and the reasons behind that. Right? And the reasoning right now, it's uh, you know we're not getting the actual answers that uh, that. Uh, that we're looking for. 
yeah, I can't find out why Stephenville is not part of that uh, that plan because, I mean, if I live in Stephenville, it's amazing that I would have to drive to Deer Lake versus go, go to the airport in my own community to get on an air ambulance. Uh, very quickly, sometimes it just pops in my mind when I see or hear your name. Is, is there any appetite inside your party uh, for you specifically to try to revisit your private member's resolution regarding Crown Lands? Because... The government hears the stories. There's not only what's best for the people, which is how bald policy should work in the first place, but politically speaking, I think it's in everyone's best interest as all 40 members of the House of Assembly we can figure out the Crown lands. Are you going to revisit that? Well, Petty, we're not, certainly not giving up on it. You know, like uh, when spring comes, I'm open to see some legislation actually in, in spring for, for Crown lands. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an area that certainly needs to be looked at and addressed and, uh, and something figured out in regards to the situations that are happening in the Crown lands area. So, uh, so, no, we're not giving up on it by no means. And uh, I will revisit it in whichever way, it, whichever way we can, you know, whether it's in the House of Assembly or, uh, or discussions to, uh, to figure out which way we go with this to have some corrections done with the Crown land system. I appreciate the time, sir. Morning. Anything else, Cleveland? Oh, one thing, Patty. I just uh, it is uh, it is the uh, uh, by-election certainly in uh, in Conservative Bay East Bell Island. I just want to uh, say that uh, Tina Neri certainly is a great candidate out that way, and uh, and we're hearing at the doors, of course. Uh, you know, people are frustrated with the Liberals in regards to carbon tax, sugar tax, and that sort of stuff. So uh, we need to get Tina in that in that seat and. Uh, continue to work that uh, David Brazel has done and we've done and I'm sure Tina will continue to do the same. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Cleveland Force. He's the PC member for exploits. You would just, you know, stands to reason. Maybe there's some logistical issues that makes it a better idea for air ambulance to be stationed at or located in St. John's at St. John's International Airport, as I sometimes I like to call Torbay Airport. But if there are some of those issues that have made that a wise decision. Maybe someone could just tell us exactly why they are or where they are or what they are. Because if you just think about it, you just look at a map, you would think that having something more centralized, which would make it closer to a variety of parts of the province, would be the way to go. But anyway, we'll try to figure that out. And yes, we're still trying to understand exactly why Stephenville is not one of the landing strips that the air ambulance will be using, in addition to any comments about the Stephenville airport. We have many, many times in the recent past gone to the Diamond Group of companies to look for a status update. All we know is that the purchase has been completed. They actually renamed the airport, which is extraordinary. And the only bit of work that we can see that has been done came with federal government monies to do some runway upgrades. Other than that, haven't heard of anything else. So if you're in Stephenville, and yes, we've tried to, you know, broach this issue with Mayor Rose and with Mr. Diamond once in the past, maybe maybe twice, but we're trying to get you some updates because what's happening here is right from the get-go, there was certainly skepticism or cynicism rule the day regarding this particular story. I don't know if it's ever going to come to pass as it was articulated by Mr. Diamond initially with the hundreds of millions of dollars and the thousands of jobs and bringing back more passenger traffic and the cargo drones and everything else that was put forward or spoken to by Mr. Diamond. We haven't seen anything really happen, even with some of the monies to do away with one of the liability issues. Because remember, there was all that one outstanding court case that had to be resolved before there was any step forward. That has happened and it happened months ago even when it came to access to money. The money that was used by Mr. Diamond inside of that one liability was actually borrowed from or invested by some guy who hit the lottery. So we don't know exactly what's happening out there with that airport, but we're happy to take it on. And inside the world of the federal cabinet retreat in Montreal. And again, 
We don't know who is the middle class any longer. It would be helpful if politicians could be a little bit more forthright on exactly who they consider to be in the middle class. How do we do that evaluation? Is it a percentage of the money that you have afforded to housing, afforded to feeding yourself and your family? That used to be the way things were measured to identify who belonged or who was a part of what class or another. So inside the world of housing, Housing starts are not keeping up with the pressure on the population, right? So it's absolutely true. Last year in this country, let's see, I had the number close. Last year, the numbers come from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation that housing starts are down 7% since 2022. That still meant that there was 223,513 new starts last year. But when you look at the numbers of people in the country, so look for starters, if there's 40 million people in Canada, that's not 40 million homes. Here are some of the breakdowns about the numbers of people on average that are living in one household or another. In Canadian households, there's an average of about 2.45 people. In Germany, it's about 2.14 people per household. In Ireland, about 2.73 people per household. No doubt that number is changing too, right? That number has certainly increased in the last couple of years. We see these multi-generational households now, where the nan, the pop, their son and daughter, and their grandkids all living under one roof. Maybe not the way it once was, uh, say as recently as three or four or five years ago, given the housing pressures. But some of the numbers simply based on the newcomers to the country. Now, some of these big numbers also include temporary foreign workers and international students. So there's, at this point, some 2.1 million non-permanent residents in Canada. And, of course, it includes all the newcomers and the TFWs and the international students. The government of Canada, the Liberal government, with their NDP supply and confidence arrangement, Looking at the immigration numbers, period, and here's right directly from Stats Canada. Stats Canada reported a total population increase of 1,158,705 permanent and non-permanent residents as of July the 1st of 2023. That's a 2.9% increase over July the 1st of 2022. It's the highest population growth rate record recorded for a 12-month period since 1957. So yes, there is going to be some additional nuance to the conversation regarding housing and a mindset that has changed dramatically the, over the course of the last 30 years. We look at housing starts as an economic measuring tool. We look at housing as the biggest piece of equity we'll ever have versus the way we used to think about housing in this country some 30, 40 years ago as a place to live. So some of those numbers, and if the government, including Immigration Minister Mark Miller, including Housing Minister Sean Fraser, they've acknowledged the pressures, and it's just one of the pressure points on the housing market and the increase in rental costs and the increase in housing costs. Now, some of that is directly associated with the Bank of Canada and mortgage rates that have been affected by the 10 consecutive rate hikes coming from Mr. Macklem at the Bank of Canada. But those immigration numbers, if they can acknowledge that they are at an all-time high, and housing has not kept up with, although very close last year with the housing starts, if we incorporate the fact that 223,000 plus, when we have an average of 2.4, 2.5 people living in a home, pretty close, but obviously we're playing catch up. So continuing on the rate that we currently have in place is not going to allow for the housing market to catch up. Because remember, and it's not just the numbers of people living here, there are zoning bylaws. And we saw last week Conservative leader Mr. Poliev going at it with the mayors of Quebec City and Montreal about some of the comments he made about housing and their pushback. 
We have municipal zoning laws that are just too cumbersome and take too much time before you identify, engineer, design home, put shovels in the ground before the house gets built. The zoning laws and inspections and all the rest is just, it's not as streamlined as it needs to be. In addition, there is an absolute concern right across the country, not because I say so, but the Canadian Home Builders Association and all of their members say it's becoming more and more difficult with every passing day to get skilled tradespeople in place to build the number of homes that are required. So there's some immigration numbers and stats coming from not only Stats Canada, but the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Oh, I said I'd do this on behalf of some of the organizers. Getting prepared for the 2024 Newfoundland Labrador Winter Games are going to be taking place in the town of Gander. So it begins on February the 24th, wraps up on the 2nd of March. There's going to be hundreds and hundreds of volunteers required. They've got volunteers in place, but they are still looking for more. So if you're out in, in Gander or surrounding area, I would like to be one of the volunteers helping out the folks at the Winter Games for 2024. They are looking for you. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I mentioned a couple of uh, flight-related stories off the top of the program today. This is a good one. It's flight, but this is space flight. It was on this date in 1992 that the Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off for an eight-day mission in space on board the first female Canadian astronaut and the first neurologist in space, Dr. Roberta Bodner. Okay, pretty cool on this date. Let's go. Line number one, Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm okay. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. I'm driving, so I pull over. Now I'll talk to you, uh, Teddy. Uh, your topic of inter- one of your topic of interest this morning is the air amps, uh, am- amalgamation of the air amps and the road amps system uh, that the Medivev is uh, putting out in the RFP and going to drive it down our throat and going to have it done hopefully by the fir- by the end of January. But uh, I think I do believe because of all the complaining from different people like the mayor Gander and the operator Patrick White and and myself, the Air Amlets Medical Transport FC Group, and the list goes on. David Calhan, whoever uh, they got it extended now to the first of April, which is wonderful because very little consulting that been done. To, with the people that knows the system and knows what's better for the patient. And and, and to drive it down our throat that quick, well, it was just wasn't good enough. So I, I wondered, we had a lot of issues on our slate when I started this group in March of 2018, uh, like uh, not using the, the air ambulance for Fogo Island and using the ferry at night, and, and that haven't, we haven't gained much ground there, but it was used three times, I think, last year, which is not good enough, really. And other issues like, uh, you know, not didn't have 24-hour uh, coverage in Goose Bay and uh, didn't have enough air ambulance in the system to, to take care of the system and uh, not centralized. And we, we got promised by the minister back then, Minister Aggie and by the premier, that this was going to get done. This was going to get centralized. It made sense. And you, like you said there then, closer to the patient. Uh, but, Patty, it never did get done. And now this RFP is out, and I've been studying the RFP in the last few weeks, a couple of weeks. And they're saying they're going to put one air amulet in Goose Bay and four in St. John's. Now, we've been fighting back on that because 75% of the population, I would say, lives on the Avalon and don't need an air amulet. It's used about 5% of the time for the Janeway or transplants. So why would you need four air amulets? Well... The minister have been coming back saying, well, 75% of the population lives there. Well, minister, yes, but they don't need an Aramis. Then he came back and said, well, 50% of the medical transport uh, group is on the Avalon. Yes, that's true. But why can't they live in Gander? Why can't they work shift in Gander like they would in Goose Bay? It, 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 and then he came back, Patty, and said, 
uh, you know, trying to, I believe, trying to uh, talk over or cover up the, the what's happening with, with the mayor of Gander and said, but we're going to put Art Force One there. Now, Art Force One is an helicopter. So there might be one helicopter stationed there. And then he said, well, we're going to refuel the Aramisa there. Well, well, boy, I tell you, a lot of jobs there. But it also says in the rebound, they're going to take the dispatch at a Gander that's been there for all these years. The Gander Air Services Dispatch. So we're going to lose jobs. We're not going to gain any jobs. We're not going to have no air ambulance centralized. And Teddy, we got two air ambulances in the system from Gander. That's in St. John's on the tarmac, iced over with no terminal building. It's not making sense to anyone because I does a lot of traveling. I talks to a lot of people, and and even the people on the Avalon because I was just in there the weekend. Says Eugene, but what you're saying and what did uh, Dave Callan is saying and what Pat Boyd is saying or the Mayor Gander or whoever is saying makes sense. We don't need air ambulance. Excuse me. We don't need air ambulance there. We need them out closer to the patient. So it's not making any sense. And and I, I don't know. See the hard force one. Uh, David uh, Callahan was on our time of that a few days ago. Uh, well, I think it was Friday. He was concerned because he wouldn't going to have it in Stephenville. Now, you questioned the Stephenville issue about where air ambulances couldn't be used there. Now, I never heard that before, Patty. Uh, I do believe it would still be used there. But the Art Force One, he was open that it would be at least an, uh, an helicopter in Stephenville. That was what David Callahan was saying. And he had been supporting the issue of having air ambulance based in central Newfoundland because it would be closer to Stephenville, of course, Deer Lake or wherever. We got, you know, uh, helicopters. We had that many years ago. I know we had it come to Fogo Island. Well, we got, we got hair strips now. We need the hair ambulance, not the helicopters. And they say they can't fly over water at night. I don't know if that's still the fact. But so what would be the good of that for a place like Fogo Island or St. John's? Fair enough. Lots of confusion about the decision-making process regarding whether it be Heart Force One or Air Ambulance Services, the Stephenville's role or lack thereof. So I don't know. It's about time. I think we revisit a conversation with a couple of the ministers responsible on those files and see if we can get a, a little bit more of an explanation or an elaboration about how we've arrived at some of these decisions. Uh, anything else this morning, Eugene, before we take another call? The, party, the point that you was driving on, it should be close to the patient. Get the minister on, please. Ministers were not. And ask them, boy, they're not going to be based close to the patient. They would be greatly appreciated. Fair enough. I appreciate the time. Have a nice day, Patty. Thank you, Eugene. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to another call here. So a lady has called the newsroom, and the newsroom has asked me to put this out there. A black truck traveling up Bond Street in Carbonair. There was a big, heavy knapsack fell out of the back. She wants to get it back to the owner. So if you're the owner of a black pickup truck that was driving up Bond Street in Carbonair very recently, and you're missing the backpack, we know where it is. So give us a shot. We'll reconnect you. Let's go to line two. Otto, you're on the air. Good morning, Hello. Otto. Good morning. How was Teddy this morning? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Oh, Jesus, sun is shining, sun nice here, boy. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, Teddy, the main crew in the highways, they don't cut brush, they don't fill up holes, they don't ditch the road. What are they doing? Tell me what. If Minister Abbott comes on your air, but he hasn't, I never seen the look. Everything is rolled up on the trench counter, on the, in the communities. It's unreal. They don't ditch the road. They don't cut the bush. They don't fill up holes. So now, if you have, uh, you have a, a washout down there, Trans Canada, they pull up a pole on. Probably there six months before they fix it. Probably never fix it. It's ridiculous. 
So there's a few things. Inside the world of road work, and of course, there's a fairly compressed season to do the work, but the point you make regarding brush clearing, it doesn't have to be perfect conditions like you need to pave a road to clear the brush. That's one thing that frustrates me. I've got one of my sons now living away from the city and spends a bit of time on the highway and some of the secondary trunk roads, and he complains about it. We hear conversations about it all the time on the show. You know, whether it be about protecting yourself from a moose collision, which the one of the best fighting chances you have is, you know, a bit of a heads up, a chance yeah. to see the thing coming before it ends up in your lap. So brush mm-hmm. clearing should be a really comprehensive schedule and done much more frequently than it seems to be getting done. Yeah, and it should be cut back. I mean, the, the moose is tip on the highway now. We're out in the lane, eh? You haven't got a prayer, eh? Now, Patty, I was up to the manor there in Clarenville. Mm-hmm. Many old manor. Long care, 24-hour service, 24-hour care, right? Now, I've seen six or seven girls, women, sitting down to the desk, playing games. As far as I'm concerned, buddy, that that phone should be left in the pocket when he's on shift. Now, I I got nothing against the nurses, say. They're angels, as far as I'm concerned. But I saw it my own eyes, and... Like Butler Ben said, no break but fact. As far as I'm concerned, that phone should be left in the pocket. Now, on the brakes, yes, but not when they're working, eh? Fair enough. I think there's also a conversation to be had about how we allow students in the K-12 system to use their phones in school because without a doubt, I mean, they can indeed be using it for educational purposes, but 99% of the time I would imagine it's just to communicate with their buddies or to play a game, and that distraction is not helping. No, like in Merge, the way for seen Merge several times a year, right? Okay. I saw nurses at the station playing games, Emerge now. You know, I got nothing against the nurses, eh? As far as I'm concerned, they're angels, eh? But the phone should be left in their pocket while they're on the job. And if they take it out when on the break, yes, I can see that. Or I'll make a phone call to someone, eh? Emergency. But not on the job, buddy. Fair enough, Adam. Anything else this morning, sir? What? Would you like to talk about anything else this morning while we have you? Yeah, I'd like to, to know where I can get a CD or or, or, or tape from Leon Chalk down in Charlottetown. She's a beautiful singer, right? What's her name? Leanne Chalk. Leanne Chalk. Uh, the best person in this building to ask about stuff like that would be our programming director. I'll jot down that name and I'll run it by Greg Smith, who's got his finger on the music pulse. So see, maybe you never know. The money we won't hear. If there is, and I put my hands on it, I'll mail it out to you. Thank you, Rob Petty. You're doing a wonderful job. Thanks, Otto. Stay in touch. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Leanne Chalk, Leanne Chalk, Charlottetown. Have you ever heard of that singer, Dave? No, you have? Oh, so you never know. We might be able to do exactly that and put our hands on a tape or a CD, more likely. So I'll ask Greg about that. And if so, we will get Otto's mailing address and send it out to him. Why not? All right, very quickly before we get to the news. 
So it made reference to the couple of teens that were sentenced and their role in the PwC attack. Then we heard the story from last week in the uh, city of Mount Pearl. And two different emailers in two different parts of the province, one down the Buren Peninsula, one up the Great Northern Peninsula, saying that issues in their region seldom, if ever, make the news. And consequently, says one gentleman, is maybe there's a false sense of security in some smaller towns because we don't see those violent episodes make headlines. Fair enough. So they both, one guy sent along a video that I haven't watched yet, but he tells me that it's really quite something that happened outside of school on the Buren Peninsula. I'll leave the uh, specific out of it until I have a look at it. So yes, by no means, certainly not my role here, by no means am I saying that the issues regarding the potential for violence, whether it be in general or at school or at any level or in any form, simply happens in the metro region because that's obviously not true. It's the possibility for it to happen anywhere in the province so fair enough i don't know whether or not we have the same willingness for people to share their stories from some of the smaller communities why because maybe just maybe sometimes when you don't have that huge population base it might be easier to identify who's running to the media so to speak without telling these stories who's speaking out and consequently potentially painting their community in a bad light i don't know what the reasons are but those two emailers are 100 percent right you don't quite hear the same type of stories covered in certain parts of the province as you might in the metro region. And in specifics, the issues regarding schools and school-related violence. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But during the news break, here's a couple of numbers for you to call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free log distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, then we're coming back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm calling um, concerning a case that's in the courts now in Labrador against a former brother with a Catholic school up there uh, from the 1970s who uh, is charged with sexual assault against boys in that school. My question is, uh, or my thought is, I don't see any of this on the media, either 590 VOCM or NTV, any of the Newfoundland media, we call it. And I'm just wondering, is it because it's a Labrador issue as opposed to a Newfoundland issue? Is it not just as important as Mount Cashel? Oh, 100%. Well, I can only speak for myself on this one at this point, but I was unaware of this particular issue, and I have no inkling to want to talk about things that are only close by where I live. We try to be very much uh, focused in on every part of the province, so when we hear the stories, and, you know, I'm glad you called to tell us about it this morning, because now we can shed some light on it. So exactly what happened, and what's being evaluated or adjudicated in court? Well, I uh, I have friends in Labrador, and I had a phone call recently, and this guy told me that a former brother was in court up there for sexual assault against young boys in the Roman Catholic school in, in Happy Valley back in the 70s. And uh, so I went into the Newfoundland court docket online, and sure enough, the story he was telling me was true. This individual, uh, I think he's on his fourth court appearance coming up maybe next month. So it's going through the system, and it's just that uh, we had a discussion that, you know, this is not this is not in the news. Maybe it's not important enough because it's 
it's isolated and it's Labrador. No, well, again, can only speak for myself, but I don't feel that way at all. So if there are people willing to share stories with be live on the air like you're doing today and or via email, if the information makes it to me, I'm happy to talk about that and whatever else under the sun on this program, Labrador or otherwise. Am I allowed to say the man's name? If it's on the court docket, it's public knowledge, yeah. Yeah, his name is Douglas Stamp. He was a brother at the Catholic school in Happy Valley in the 1970s. And so where has he been since then? Well, I've since checked. Uh, I- I'm not sure, actually. I tried to do some online research, but that's as far as I got. I just, okay. You know, yeah. Anyway, thanks for taking my call. Anytime. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, one of those issues has been that revolving door. Moving, like some of the brothers that, for instance, who were charged, convicted for their role in abusing boys at Mount Cashel, they were simply shipped off to other parts of the country, unbeknownst to the folks in that, those receiving provinces. There's one, Edward English, and I think the made his way to British Columbia, did the exact same thing. So that story from Labrador, so make... No bones about it. If you are living in Labrador, like this morning, again, I've talked many times about mining opportunities in Labrador and power distribution in Labrador and potential for more development in Labrador. So that is absolutely on the front burner around here. So if you're living in the Great Northern Peninsula and or in Labrador, want to bring some of those more regionalized stories to this show, we would welcome your call any day of the week. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Please. No problem. Uh, I'm just, I wanted to call about the uh, the decision last week by uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Schools, uh, the school district, to keep schools open in Cornerbrook uh, during that uh, foul weather that was that we had over the West Coast. And I, one line, I was reading an article, and one line in particular struck me. By A teacher said that it's upset that calls from principals to those schools were disregarded. And I guess, Patty, uh, to me, it's a little bit of a deja vu all over again. And I I, I remember in 20, and I, I'm going to go back to 2013 when the decision was made at that time to amalgamate the four school districts into one. And at that time, there was a, it was announced suddenly I took office as president in, the, in, in that, uh, that summer uh, following it. And uh, I remember talking to the principals, uh, in, especially around school closures due to weather. And uh, at that time, you could see that what a lack of a plan did. And I remember at that time... Uh, oh my gosh, visiting schools in Labrador and talking to principals in Labrador, when it came to decisions of extreme weather, the principals would have, would more or less check the weather, but they had no control over whether schools uh, were being, uh, were being, uh, were being closed. They had more or less was centralized in the St. John's office and they felt totally frustrated with it. Uh, at that part, they, uh, you know, they're the ones that are in charge of the, uh, the, uh, the schools in that district. They know the conditions. Flash forward, I guess, to 2022, I think, when the, uh, when the uh, current Liberal government announced that they were integrating the NLAC into the department. And I remember when Minister Osborne at the time announced that, I said, so what are the plans uh, as you go forward here as to, uh, to avoid what happened in, uh, in 2013, uh, similar decision, different administration, but uh, uh, but with the same effect. And uh, I remember the minister saying at that time, well, we'll have a better idea of what we're hoping to accomplish once we get into the process. And 
here we are. We have another situation today, uh, this last week, where it, it seems that the decision-making process is disrupted, and it actually exposed, in this case, students uh, to, uh, you know, to, I guess, safety issues. It, uh, disrupt it made life difficult for parents. It certainly made life difficult for the school as well. And it could have been, it could have been a lot more serious than it was. And we have a minister then who's not available for comment. And I guess the frustration, frustrating part for me is that here we have two similar incidents 10 years apart, well, actually a little bit more than 10 years apart, and we're seeing, I guess, a similar... I would I would put it down to uh, a lack of a lack of a plan or a lack of at least involving the people who are on the ground, the teachers, the principals in the school, the decision makers, the school community in in this process. And I'm not confident that there is a plan for this as they integrate. We've got a logo. Uh, we got a new logo design. That's the easy part. Um, but. Right now, I, I, I know the, uh, the president of the NLT has called for an investigation in this. How does this happen? But I, I, I'm, I'm really upset, I guess, with the disruption that is yet again a decision is made, a lack of a, a, lack of a plan for, uh, uh, that I can see. We have a, by the way, we have a consultant's report. that was, We were told about that this year, but we, no one can see it because, well, it's a cabinet document. So... I, I, you know, I, I've been at, I've been, I was a teacher for 32 years, four years as an NLTA president. I've been in this role and an education critic, and it deeply concerns me that uh, that there seems to be this confusion, this level of confusion, in decision making, that principals at, at the at the ground level seem to have their judgment questioned, or or their advice disregarded, and yet. We have uh, someone from the department saying, well, decision-making hasn't changed. Well, it has. And, and we have the Minister of Education, who is really now the, uh, the, where the buck stops, unavailable for a comment. So it causes me concern significantly. To your knowledge, Jim, like, I don't know if politicians are involved whatsoever in school closure or leave them open decisions. But the one in Cornerbrook, put it this way. I'm glad it's not my job because you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. We've had a couple of uh, opportunities for these types of calls we made here in St. John's and surrounding area this winter where the forecast didn't come to pass and consequently schools were closed for no good reason. And in Cornerbrook, there's a disconnect because if the schools are going to remain open but the buses are taken off the road, generally speaking, many decisions are made based on public transportation. Like Memorial University never used to close until Metrobus came off the road. The government should not be closing their doors on these types of storm days either because the argument for kids is about safety and the congestion in school zones. So when that's the day the last week or the week before where the schools were closed here and the provincial government closes doors at the same time. So I guess the point in Cornerbrook is if the schools are going to be open then the buses have to be on the road. If the buses are coming off the road, you have to close the schools. Yeah, and when I was teaching on the Buren Peninsula, my I, my first year teaching, I know it was the school buses that determined whether the school was going to be open because they were the ones. Most of the students were bused into the school school where I was teaching, and uh, and that that made sense because the roads could be treacherous. I, and I guess here, once once they amalgamated or once they brought the school district into the department, they made it very political. And yes, the uh, the, the minister, I, I like the minister, has now made, put herself 
uh, in this position where the buck stops with her is not the is not the superintendent of schools. Ultimately, it stops with her. So sure. I, I just I just look. Here's the, the key thing: 2013, different uh, political stripe. Same uh, a decision was made suddenly to amalgamate schools, and I don't know if it uh, if the benefit was there. I know that principals and and local area uh, decision making. They, a lot of principals felt left out. Teachers felt uh, that they uh, more or less that, that their their expertise was being uh, discredited, and it was being and the decision making was centralized in St. John. So here we have the same thing. Uh, and I I guess if there's if there's a simple way, err on the side of caution, because I I know you're uh, you're right. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. But I do believe that, you know, you err on the side of caution. Weather is, uh, is fickle, but I would rather have, uh, you know, kids off uh, the road uh, and, uh, and safe uh, as opposed to seeing what would happen on the West Coast or uh, having buses go off the road. So I think in many ways, uh, what, if, the, if the decision-making ma- process as, as this uh, an education um, uh, Department of Education official said hasn't changed, well, maybe we need the changes so that the local can Conditions uh, are best determined by the uh, local uh, the principals, the local managers of the school, and let them decide. I can tell you, I had my taste of snow squalls when I was visiting schools over there. When I was president, and I had an eye opener because I thought snow squalls were just little uh, dust ups, but I had a full I had a full taste of it, and I know just how treacherous it is. So I would say that the people who best know this are the people in the area, but Right now, two things that that this shouldn't have happened, should never happen again. But I think, uh, if anything else, where this, this Newfoundland School is now part of the department, in the end, it's either going to be that uh, the superintendent uh, of schools or the or the minister who's going to have to answer for this, but because they've made it very political, and uh, and I don't, I, and I really hope it's going to be to the benefit of uh, that this amalgamation is going to benefit schools, but this is not an auspicious start, that's for sure. I appreciate the time this morning, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. And this one other thing, Patty, reminder, the day is the early advance polls. Regardless of what uh, party you're voting for, get out and vote while the weather is good. Yeah, because we've had some pretty woeful voter turnouts, especially in by-elections. I appreciate the time, Jim. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jim did. The NDP member, St. John Center. He's also the leader of the party. And I got some pushback right away. At the corner of my eye, I saw the email float in. Look, like the last time they closed the schools around here, the forecast didn't even really call for schools to be closed, given the fact that some of the heavier snow conditions and the wind was going to pick up mid to late afternoon after schools are closed. So the schools remained closed the entire day. There wasn't any real weather till around supper time. Then the comment I made that obviously this person is a public sector employee and so be it. You know, we're really quick to shut down the provincial government these days on these so-called snow days when schools are being considered whether or not they should be open or closed. But we've seen it very, very quickly. All of a sudden, months closed right away. And yes, safety pertains to people who are adults, teenagers, and yes, children. But I think there's a different feature and flair when we talk about why schools would be closed prior to, say, for instance, Confederation being being closed for the day. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. Plenty of time for you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, this lady's name came up a little while ago. I believe it was Otto, right? Otto saying that he loved to have a CD from Leanne Chalk. Join us on line number five is indeed singer, musician, Leanne Chalk. Hi, Leanne. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. How about you? Good. You guys are good detectives. <laughs> now, not bad. Hey, before we get into uh, Otto's request here, Dave tells me you used to work here in this building. I did. When was that? 
Um, gosh, must have been from 98 to 2011. And so you were on hits? Yep. Right on. So I would I was be... known as Leanne Sharp then. Oh, no, I recognize that name. I did not recognize <laughs> Leanne Sharp as being a uh, uh, radio <laughs> announcer here at Hits FM. So that's pretty cool. No. Nice connection to be made. So how'd you find out that Otto was looking for your CD? Someone called you? Uh, my dad. My nice. manager. <laughs> your manager. Right on. What have always called him. <laughs> Fair enough. Tell us a bit about what you're doing in the music business. Um, haven't been at it for a while, actually. Just the CDs, uh, they, uh, as, as aged as they are, they're still selling. <laughs> so, I mean, I was probably 12 or 13 when I was asked to sing at um, um, a relative's wedding. And it's just been since then singing at weddings and funerals. And then my brother-in-law um, is um, a musician of all types of instruments, uh, self-taught. And uh, he started with a little four-channel um, system at his house in Portugal Cove, and we've taken it from there. I've uh, recorded with Bud Davidge as well. So I always talk to Mama. Is that you? Yep. Same one. Very cool. So when's the last time you've made a CD or released one? Uh, I used to work very, very closely with the late, great Wince Cole. So probably, oh, my gosh. I'd say probably 15, 16, 17 years ago now. So a lot of the stuff that's on my, um, that's on the CDs that I have um, are originals from Wince Coles. Uh, he did a lot of writing. He actually wrote, um, I always talk to mama, only one daddy like you. Um, there's several, um, no, I should say even more than several. Well, every, the four CDs that I have, majority of them are Wince's writings. So what do you do these days? I am in finance uh, in the car sales industry. Um, I'm currently at Capital Hyundai, so I'm kind of next door to you guys right now. That you are, and since you said uh, your radio name, I know exactly who you are, of course, because I was just starting here when you were just leaving here. You got it, yeah. So, Leanne, where can I get one of your CDs for Otto, or do you want to send this one, and I'll send it on to him? Absolutely. I'll get Dad to drop it off. Why not? Now, I, we used to, the CDs were, you know what? I was at Fred's Records not too long ago, and there was a couple of CDs there as well. But I'll get Dad to drop one of mine out. I think that's brilliant. And I'll get Otto's mailing address, and I'll pop it in the mail for him. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well. You too. Okay, Leanne. All the best. There you go. Making things happen on the open line. Uh, Otto makes a request. Looks like we're going to be able to satisfy him. So Leanne's dad. So right off the bat, big thanks to Leanne Chalk's father for tuning into the program, calling Leanne, told her about the request. She calls us. Otto will be chuffed to get that CD in the mail. And, you know, a variety of times, uh, well, pardon me, oftentimes, well, I'll get an email. Someone says, you know, how about this issue? How about that one? Please do. You know, you help populate my mind with some of the issues of concern. So you were happy to bring them up on the program. One, and regarding this is about music and what have you, is this being the year of the arts. Of course, many times when politicians or political parties, they decide to designate one year or another. Remember there a few years ago, we were anticipating the year of the cod. I don't even think that ever happened. But with it being the year of the arts, I've heard a lot of people... (coughs) 
ridicule that particular decision, you know, based on a variety of factors. And when you talk about the issues of importance and concerns that people share, inside the arts may not be a big one. But of course, the arts is absolutely still part of the economy and probably a bigger part than people realize. So there's going to be a bunch of different funding pots, although I don't think any money has flowed yet. We've even heard recently from Rhonda Talk Lane, who was the head person at Music Canal, talk about that exact issue. So yes, I haven't forgotten that this is the year of the arts. I don't know how important that might be to you. For people who are working in the arts, obviously important to them. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the Coalition on Persons with Disabilities. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, Patty, I just was speaking with Aegis for a moment and would really like to uh, speak to your listening audience about an event that uh, the coalition held last night or yesterday evening with the candidates in the uh, Conception Bay East Bell Island uh, by-election. Yep. And uh, we had a, a great turnout, and I want to say thank you so much to so many people from our community of persons with disabilities uh, who came to the uh, Holiday Inn yesterday evening in person, and we had quite a number of people also join us live. I will uh, put an apology to those who had difficulty joining us live. We did have a, a hiccup, I guess, with our um, connection on YouTube, so we will be putting the full uh, video from the event uh, on our YouTube channel just as soon as we can make that happen, hopefully later today. Um, but we had a great event last night. We had a great turnout. And it really, I believe, speaks to the, um, I guess, the, the, the willingness and the, uh, uh, I guess, the, the desire by so many people in our community to really be heard, to have their voices heard, to come out, and to really, um, I guess, a recognition that people with disabilities have a lot to say, and they are, they are a huge factor in this election. I hope people are really understanding that 30% of the voting population is a really big number to listen to. It absolutely is, and that was exactly what I was going to say, and I think people need to be reminded of that, because, you know, sometimes if you don't think about it, or unless you have a disability yourself or someone belongs to you, you probably don't understand the fact that some 30% of the population is living with some form of disability. So what were some of the key items that were, were discussed yesterday at the town hall? Well, you know, uh, there were several items that were ongoing, I guess, things that we've talked about in the media over recent months. Uh, certainly some of the things around uh, recent our amendments to building accessibility and legislation and that type of thing. Another of the key points, though, that we spoke about was um, the housing crisis. And, you know, I mean, it's talked about on open line and other places continuously these days. But when we think about that with an accessibility lens, people with disabilities are in every demographic. And so if we think about public housing and the needs for public housing to be available to persons with disabilities of all types, there's a huge need there. And also for private, uh, you know, for private landlords and, and uh, property owners, you know, we need to get the message out more fully that if you're considering building or leasing or renting a property, having a property that is accessible opens the door to such a huge number of people who have barriers to housing. And, uh, you know, and that demographic is not going to be reduced anytime soon. We have an aging demographic. And if you are fortunate enough to age, to become an older adult, you know, oftentimes that comes with it opportunities for, um, oftentimes that comes with disabilities, uh, you know, various forms of disabilities, physical mobility, and, and other types as well. So we really have to recognize that 
uh, housing needs are, are going to be real for persons with disabilities, and we really want to bring that forward. And so that was also one of the topics that was discussed openly uh, last night at, at the event. Yeah, and I think some of the <clears throat> monies have been earmarked for exactly that regarding some of the housing accelerator fund. And I see various municipalities across the country also very clearly talking about disabilities and accessibility when they talk about building of new homes. Let me just bounce this off you. So I'm not sure, I, I don't want to be just cold here, but sometimes I think that some of the issues that would be concerning to you and to people that you represent are probably not understood by politicians. So unless you understand an issue, it's hard to come forward with some really good pragmatic public policy to deal with what, whatever issue is, accessibility, housing regarding folks you represent or otherwise. Do you think there's just a base misunderstanding of the dis disabled community by politicians in general? I think, you know, there's a misunderstanding because you just, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, that's in every, every, every place that we go is not only with the politicians, but certainly there is often a misunderstanding or a lack of information. Um, you know, the event last night served to inform and demonstrate that there's a community of people out there with information, uh, certainly community-based organizations, the coalition, obviously we led that event last night. There are other organizations that are very valid and have, you know, have expertise and understanding and there's a community of people with information that really needs to be captured and understood one of the things that we talked about last night patty was that sometimes our uh, government will consult with the community and you know it's obvious there are different you know processes of consultation but oftentimes that information is not used um, effectively or, or the way that it should be when, you know, policies are made and, 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 and things are done. And so we really need to stress, and, and it was something that was talked about last night in several ways, we need to ensure that it's not just lip service, that our politicians especially are engaging with the community, engaging with those with lived experience, and really taking that information and using it, not just putting it aside and relying on somebody else, maybe a lawyer for the only information. Absolutely, the, the voices of, you know, our legal teams, of course, and, you know, I'm going to say business owners, property owners, all of those voices have to come to the table in order to get the solutions that make sense for us all. But that can't be done without the voice of those with lived experience. It just can't. And so I'm assuming all four candidates attended? Absolutely. Uh, all four candidates attended without hesitation. Uh, each of them responded very quickly um, and excited uh, to be able to have this conversation. I really think there's a, a growing understanding of the need uh, to really, you know, capture the, that voice of that 30 percent plus of our community. And uh, so we're really we're really pleased with, you know, the attendance by uh, the candidates. And of course, you know, uh, most of them had folks with them to, you know, supporters. Um, it, it was a really comfortable, respectful event. Uh, there was there was no problem in the space at all. Marie Ryan was our moderator for the evening, and Marie is great. Many of us know Marie uh, mm -hmm. from from all kinds of backgrounds, and um, and you know she, she she kept us on task and, and made things flow. But it was it was a really great event, and I just want to thank everybody for participating uh, for the for the. Uh, for obviously for Marie, but also for the candidates and all of the public and the uh, community-based organizations and individuals that showed up. It was a really great event. And again, apologize for the, uh, you know, for the error, I guess, that, you know, that we experienced with some of the live uh, feed, but we will be putting it on our YouTube channel uh, as soon as possible. And I'll certainly send out information regarding that in our, in our Facebook and, and places. I'm glad it went well, Nancy, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care.
Bye-bye. There you go. It's Nancy Reid, Executive Director at CADNL, the Coalitions of Persons with Disabilities. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. William, you're on the air. Hey, pal, how you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad, buddy. I'm only calling in because I heard uh, Leanne Chalk. I remember being her, uh, hearing her on Leanne Sharp on the radio. Pal, honestly, I think that we we don't pay enough support to our so-called. And I, I don't like when I hear people talk about we got a concert and our local musicians. Somewhere, somehow, everybody's local. I think we need to pay more support. And I, I, I don't know. Like, like Our musicians are a talent that in this province. I, I do believe, like, like and I've heard you say a couple of times, we definitely punch way above our waist. Yeah, throughout the entire gamut of the arts, and certainly that includes music. You know, Absolutely. What I sometimes the way people even just uh, present the argument kind of takes away or detracts from the talent that we actually have in this province. So some will say, "Well, it's a local production." Man, you can have a local production of Jesus Christ Superstar, but Jody Richardson's playing Jesus, who's good enough to be on Broadway. So sometimes just even the tag of local of local, I think, sometimes is disparaging purposefully when in fact, if you really look and we're honest with each other the folks that we have producing music on the uh, theater stages and throughout the entirety of arts we are really producing some extraordinary talent so just calling it local as if that's not as good as if the uh, the production came from toronto is sort of missing the point yeah, and, and that, that's the sum. And then there's times you'll see where people make, especially on, well, I don't follow Facebook very much, but you'll see where, well, that's a big expensive for a local band. But listen here, pal, you got six or seven musicians on the stage uh, between security, sound, uh, everything else that goes into the production of putting that group together. You know, 80 or $90 is really not, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm a big Shannon and Ox fan. I mean, I, I, I love the guys. But, uh, you know, when, when you see those guys on stage and they're putting in a an effort to create an entertainment show for you and you're turning around and you're calling it local. I don't know what local means anymore because these guys are professionals. Oh yeah, they're professional musicians. Of course they are. Right? So I, I like where you're coming from here. People just think that by and large, folks who are involved, and let's just stick with music, by and large, it's simply a side hustle. It's something they do as a hobby. When in fact, most of the musicians that you see playing a lot around town and around the province, that's what they do. They're musicians. It's not just something they do after work. No, and, and, and we have so many of them here. The guys are amazing. I mean, I, I call myself a kitchen musician because I play guitar sitting in the kitchen, and that's fine. But uh, these guys are phenomenal. I promote if, almost every day. You got like the Navigators, Shannon up. Now I don't spend much time downtown. I'm a little bit older now to be down <laughs> to be down on George Street. But like these guys are out, masterless man, John Kern. Like, these guys are freaking phenomenal 
And when I hear that term of local musician, it kind of rubs me the wrong way because these guys are not local. These guys are professional. Uh, absolutely. And they're worth supporting. People will always, or many people will, bemoan the fact that we'll see things like tax credits associated with TV and film production. The result of that has been we now have a fully trained professional crew that has been, we, and what we've seen, we've seen big companies like Walt Disney come here, not only because of the tax credits, because we have the professionals that can accommodate their needs. So it has really seen a return on investment, in my personal opinion. Plenty of jobs created. The industry, television, and film continues to grow exponentially you know I don't know if you can do much to you know beyond Young Folk at the Hall and some of the other tutelage programs in the School of Rock to try to keep some of the musical talent coming but I think inside the big world of uh, arts it is important it's not just you know the quote unquote fabric of society it's not just a cultural contribution it's an economic contribution as well in my personal opinion absolutely Mr. Lady I mean we were down to to the hockey game uh, last week and see two young people playing uh, the national anthems on a guitar it was like okay this is this is like uh, this is this is something professional the guys like the the two the the young girl and the the young guy that was playing the national anthem it's like it's Jimi Hendrix (laughs) They were from School of Rock. Yeah, there you go. You know, absolutely. And then you look at, uh, like, a lot of people really realize it, how much the the tourism industry has gone from, like, that show Hudson and Rex, the guys are phenomenal. It's so portrayed as a professional, like... This, just just the atmosphere of what they show on TV, um, you cannot buy that advertisement. I agree. I mean, all of those uh, shows like that really do a lot to feature the city and feature the province. Republic of Doyle went a long way to boosting tourism numbers. Son of a Critch is having great success, even south uh, of the border. God, so, God love me. Uh, the, no. the, 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 house, the house they use from the, the show, the outside house, that's just down the road for me because I live in the east end of town. So they just use the house just down the road for me up on Nogi Bay Road. And yes, I can drive by and go, hey, listen, that's the son of, that's the, that's the, that's the house and son of Bridge. But yeah, I, and in all honesty, uh, I think people got to understand and realize that this is, I, I won't call it free advertisement, but it's definitely a promotion in the province. I agree with you, William. I'm glad you made time for the show on this one. Thanks yeah. a lot. All right. You have a great day, pal. You have you a too. great day. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, some people don't want to hear it, but I mean, if you look at some of the research that's been done about what the contribution, financially speaking, to the economy coming from the arts community, it's real. It absolutely is. I mean, if you look at the fact that when the tax credits were established for TV and film, there was lots of local, we call it, you know, people who are born and raised and living and operating out of this province as producers and directors and actors, and there was lots of work being done. And now what we're seeing are some huge productions that are taking place here with out-of-province money coming to town. It's created hundreds of jobs. We have a fully trained TV and film production crew right here, which is a big deal because these production companies are simply not not coming for the rugged beauty are not simply coming because of the tax credit they also have a great uh, reliance on the local talent right from the gaffers and best boys and electricians and set decorators and all the way through the line of the, uh, the directors and all the other grunts that make a tv or film production possible so i think it's been a piece of good news for the city and for the province let's go ahead and take a break when we come back showtime is all yours don't go away 
Welcome back to the program. Well, a gentleman called from Labrador about the fact that there was no local media coverage about an ongoing sexual assault case involving a, 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 a pardon me, a priest at a Catholic school. His name is Douglas Stamp. Someone went on to tell me that he's dead. I don't know that to be true. But to, uh, you know, go a step further when I said there's been examples where, whether it be Christian brothers or priests have been moved from one parish, one school to another, one province to another, and unbeknownst to the province receiving them with their sexual assault conviction history. It's obviously a big problem. Then one of the listeners sent me an email saying that he and his wife were actually married by that particular priest in Ontario some 30 years ago, and they had no idea about any of his criminal past. So the examples pile up constantly. Let's talk about the fishery. So the Federal Finance uh, Fisheries Minister, Diane Leboutier, was here in the province last week. And some of the big issues that are currently being considered, number one, on the southwest coast of the province, of the island, those who have shrimp harvesting licenses are looking to be bought out. They want out of the game. Why? Because it's an unsustainable formula. Their catch rates are down and costs to operate are way up. What they're hoping replaces their shrimp license would be access to the redfish. Now, the province of Nova Scotia, they're really keeping a close eye on this because they have a big reliance on the redfish dock. They do some active work in the Gulf on the redfish. But it seems to me, given what we've seen regarding the numbers, they say there's some 4 million metric tons of redfish out there. So consequently, there should be plenty to go around with a manageable yearly total allowable catch. So that decision is coming soon. We don't know if it's going to be the harvesters of shrimp on the south coast get their licenses bought out, but they may indeed be able to get a license to go at the redfish. When it comes to the processing sector and redfish, you're not going to be able to replace the processing side uh, for shrimp versus redfish because it's not really a fillet product. They're pretty small. But certainly, when we know that some of the issues regarding ground fish, and when the cod went away, the savior in the province was the shellfish. Between the shrimp and the lobster and the crab, that really did save the industry, even though we saw a mass exodus of tens of thousands of people. It's the biggest layoff in Canadian history, speaking of the cod moratorium. So we're anticipating some decision being made on redfish sooner than later. In addition to that, provincially speaking, with no control for the federal government in the so-called cooperative management of the fishery, there's got to be a decision coming as soon as possible to have a better understanding of how the province is going to proceed with how they set a price for one species or another. You all know the story, the controversy regarding snow crab last year. Six weeks, the boats were tied up. So there's a lot, you know, to consider inside that six-week tie-up. But the year prior, they went from a really huge price for snow crab. I believe the season ended at around $7.60, opened last year at $2.20. So obviously, there's a massive disparity between those two numbers. So both sides, well, I guess all three sides have committed to trying to figure this out. So the FFAW, the Association for Seafood Producers, and the provincial government, unless that's in place as soon as possible, then the possibility to go down another contentious road and potentially see another hiccup or stall in the snow crab, which has had an implication beyond just the simply the industry, because there's a lot of businesses that feed into those who are operating, whether it be the plants and or the harvesters, and without people making money, of course, not spending as much money as they normally would. So it has an implication beyond folks who are working directly in the fishery, lots of indirect spin-offs and money associated with that particular species. So I would assume 
and this is you know the questions that we've posed to both the association of seafood producers and the FFAW it's basically going to have to boil down to something similar to how we price the lobster so the market will of course dictate it's not really up to anyone but the market about how much people are willing to spend on a pound of crab for instance so when things change as dramatically as they did from one year to the other, I mean, there was a real reliance on the white tablecloth inside your home versus the white tablecloth in the restaurant. It was just a much different market for the snow crab. So that said, if there's a sliding scale, which is what they eventually agreed upon last year after the six-week tie-up had come and gone, so it's going to be about what percentage of the market price can be associated with flowing to whether it be the harvester and or the processor. That's probably the only really meaningful way to know that the so-called fairness has been adhered to so sooner or later i think we're going to have to hear an announcement and now the province has said unless both sides agree to whatever formula is brought forward then they're not going to intervene at all and that if we go back to the way it currently stands which is deeply flawed and we've even had the panel say uh, many times that sometimes the price that they land on isn't probably the right price because the system just doesn't really make sense, does it? You have a three-person panel, someone representing the union, someone representing the processors, and a, so, uh, and a chair. Both sides put in a price. There's no compromise or gray area willing to meet in the middle. It's simply pick one or the other. And this is not to disparage either side. Of course, the harvesters want as much as they get, and the processors don't want to overpay for a product. Why? Because they're both in business to make money. So we'll see what comes down on the price-setting panel front. Sticking with the water for a second. And we know that Greek has had their first production of the salmon that they're farming in Placentia Bay. There was some consternation associated with which plant was going to get to process that, those salmon. And they're talking about a massive increase in production just in that one, uh, lo that one location in Placentia Bay. We don't hear a whole lot about aquaculture as like we used to. You know, there were some headline-grabbing incidents where there was mass die-offs. And, of course, you see the pictures of that pink sludge trying to be cleaned up. I think that was out of Notre Dame Bay, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then it kind of went by the wayside. You know, the concerns people had with the mass die-offs and then the escapes and then the amount of uh, chemicals being used to treat and the antibiotics and otherwise to accommodate a healthy outcome. Now, Grieg's operation apparently did produce some really healthy fish and the significant majority of them made it from the water to the plant but then I read a story in Scotland Scotland is big in the game as well and of course in this country there's a difference between how you can uh, salmon farm or any aquaculture on the west coast of the country versus the east coast but in Scotland they've got huge problems growing and not to say it because it's a problem there it's going to make its way to our waters but it's about expansion and the pace with expansion taking place so apparently in Scotland about a quarter of Scottish salmon never make it to harvest they've had some extraordinary mass die-offs in the last five years has been 53 million excess fish to which exceeds even the larger producers. So when we have the crowded nets, the spread of disease, of course, it tends profitability. I'm not suggesting that the aquaculture companies are happy enough to proceed with these types of numbers because it does take away their profitability revenue stream. It comes at enormous cost for the mass die-off. So the questions that I think we've posed in the past, and hopefully the industry is you know, understanding what they've promised, what they think some of the solutions are. So one of the mass die-off events, what we were told is that there was a lack of oxygen. And based on water temperatures, they would all congregate closer to the bottom of the net. Consequently, there was a problem with oxygen for the fish. What happened? They died. So what we were told is they need to make deeper nets 
and they also have to have aeration systems so that when and if we see a close congregation, and some of these pens are pretty tightly con- uh, uh, compressed numbers of fish anyway, but that's what we need to understand is whether or not all of those solutions that were told to us by the aquaculture companies have been implemented far and wide, or whether or not it has to be mandatory based on a regulatory regime. Because that's one of the issues that people bring forward regarding aquaculture is that the province is very much invested in and very bullish on, and they've said exactly that. They are completely in line with Greg's uh, process and policy to expand their production capacity out in that one particular, uh, those nets out in Placentia Bay. So the province is in. The comments, and I don't know if this is fair or accurate, but I hear it all the time, is that it's much akin to the fox watching the hen house. So when you have a government that has to also play the role of regulator, then that does indeed present a bit of a conflict, so say many. Then inside the issue regarding the numbers of fish that are perishing in the Scottish, uh, the Scottish plants is when was like, Greek had a different approach than others because it was the importation of a smoke that was foreign to our waters. But of course, the problem was, I, I think, dealt with in large part because the smoke were sterile and the inability to maybe, for instance, as we've seen with the escapes, and then the interbreeding with the wild stock. And what we've seen is that hybrid fish that is certainly not normal and not what we need, and the complications it means for salmon returns in the wild rivers where people, the anglers are, you know, hoping that we return to better strength in the wild salmon numbers. So some of the issues have been, of course, broached and dealt with by operations like Grieg, but that story from Scotland, based on just how quickly they expanded their aquaculture footprint, salmon farming in particular, has had some pretty negative outcomes. All right, let's check in on the Twitter before we get to the news. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openlinefeocm.com. When we come back, whatever you want to talk about is exactly what I want to talk about. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, late last week, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health released its second annual Mental Health and Substance Use Health Report Card. Looking how Canadians view provincial government's role, whether it be for access, confidence, satisfaction, and effectiveness. Joining us on line number two is our good friend, Dr. Janine Hubbard, to talk about what the results show. Good morning, Dr. Hubbard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. So basically, when I have a quick look at this report card, the results are not good. I don't know if this is a fair question to pose to you, but can you help us understand the methodology that goes into it? Because uh, Sure. Okay. As best I understand, um, and this is pretty typical for most surveys, um, is they surveyed just over 3,000 Canadians and did a proportionate uh, allotment in each of the provinces so that, um, in theory, you know, their numbers aren't being heavily skewed because they happen to reach um, 50% of their participants who lived in Newfoundland. Like, so it's it's proportionate to population spread across the country in terms of how they collect that data. And it was done back in November, and it was asking Canadians Canadians to really rate, like uh, create a report card for how well they felt both the federal government, which is interesting, and the, their various provincial governments were doing in terms of um, providing access to mental health services. Just some high-level numbers. So 90% of Canadians consider timely access to mental health services to be important. Two-thirds say it's very important. Four-fifths of Canadians agree that provincial governments had to hire more mental health providers. Just this is a bit of a 100,000 feet above sea level type of question, but when I look at the results, and the whole report card is littered with Ds and Fs, 
My worry sometimes is that we'll get into the numbers because they're important, but my worry sometimes is when we talk about the lack of access, maybe folks who are, you know, having that conversation with mm-hmm. themselves and or their family or their friends, when they think that it's dire and they think there's no help there, maybe they won't go get it. So and, how do we couch that? And we, you and I have spoken about that at length a number of times. So I do think it's important to remember that probably one of the best things our province has done in the last few years is increase access to timely, like single session, short-term, same-day walk-in mental mental health crisis unit um, so that if things are feeling really dire, we've actually done a really good job of making sure that services are available beyond historically that would be the, you know, you can either call up a helpline on the mainland somewhere or go and sit and emerge. So I think for the people who are really feeling like they're struggling, please don't let the other hold you back because there are you know, it's kind of stopgap services, but it's the equivalent of being able to go to the walk-in medical clinic on the weekend and get that antibiotic or get that whatever it is that you really need in that moment to treat the urgent piece of things. Where it's then a little bit harder is kind of like with the family physicians. It's the, okay, but how do we address this on an ongoing basis? But the emphasis on that short-term piece, I think that's something we've done really well. You know, I on the federal level, you know, the understanding or the acknowledgement that things have changed. We used to be one in five Canadians were talking about their mental illness and or had a diagnosed uh, mental illness. Now we're talking one in four. And as a result, between the CRTC and the federal government, they've added 988 as a suicide crisis hotline, for lack of a better term. So I think acknowledgement is there. But those types of numbers, whether it be at 811 or 988, is not the same as having access to long-term continuity of care in the mental health world. Let's no. get to, let's get to some of the. Okay, do you want to comment on that before we go to the report card? Well, no, no, you go right ahead. Yeah, I, I think those things are helpful, but those things are one piece. One piece, and only one piece. And, and again, it's interesting because typically health is provided uh, provincially. Uh, money for that comes in those federal transfer payments. Um, certainly the models or proposals that are out there, particularly in places like England and Australia, they're using about 9% of the budget looking at mental health services um, and figuring out some ways to kind of make that more equivalent. Um, so some of it is advocating federal federally for that increased targeted money and you and I spoke a few weeks back that they did make an announcement that they were going to remove HST PST from some counseling services which is great but that's still a fee for service um, need that people are accessing because they can't get seen publicly so on one hand yes that's a great initiative but it's not addressing the we need more mental health practitioners Um, really on the front lines. You and I have spoken before about the idea of integrating a really comprehensive mental health component to those primary health care teams so that in with your family physician, you might see a nurse practitioner, you might have a nurse, but also 
also, you might have an addictions uh, counselor, you might have a social worker, you might have a psychologist, you might have, um, you know, a number of other wraparound supports that are all part of that primary care team working with you. Let's get into the report card. So as I mentioned, the whole thing is littered with D's and F's. There's one C for one service (laughs) of public confidence, and that was in the province of Alberta. Okay, access. Total score. So what Canadians were asked, the sum 3,000 is, rank it from 1 to 10. So an A would have been if you gave it a 9 or a 10. All the way down to an F is a 1 to a 4. When we talk about access, what do the provincial numbers look like and the report card? Uh, In terms of access, we are overall coming out at an F. Actually, I think all of the provinces are pretty much coming out as an F in terms of access. So that's things like being able to providing similar or equal access to mental health services when compared to physical health services. Uh, That's looking at wait times. Um, Those are, I think, things that people are well aware of, that it is challenging, that there are good people out there. And, you know, if you can jump through all the hurdles, there's services there, but there's certainly not a feeling that they're accessible. And even when we have an F in access and the issues inside of wait times and mm-hmm. public and fundamental health care services and the equity between physical and mental health, but all of a sudden in public confidence, the score is a little bit better, which is interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, so again, I think, um, I mean, and again, we're it, it's hard to know what we're comparing here precisely. Right. What I would say is none of these are passing grades by any means. Um, so I think what we're sort of seeing here is they're sort of saying, yeah, we know that the service is there. We know that it might take us some time to get there, but there is good quality service if I can get there. I think that can be said for everything inside of healthcare in this province. Once you're in the churn, you're dealt with by real consummate professionals. Yep. The problem is getting there. There's another part of the report card which, as a man, I find a little bit confusing. Older Canadians and women give mental health services lower marks. I wonder is that because men are certainly, when we look at the numbers, suicides and otherwise, mm-hmm. men are highly resistant to try to go and get the help in the first place. Do you think that's the reason why the worst scores come from older Canadians and women? Well, it is really interesting. You're you're quite right. And I know they did try to break things down in terms of scores from people who had received services versus the general public who might not have had access to those services. Um, And again, I'm always careful when I'm looking at a survey, even, you know, one like this that's uh, quite statistically valid, about what's the key information that I want to take away from it and whether or not that general difference Again, it's hard to know, is that more of a gender thing? Is that more of an experience thing? Is that more of a willingness to seek things out? Um, I'm not sure. There were a couple of the demographic things that I did think were interesting, though. Such as? Um, The fact that um, we know visible minorities have often felt um, not well-serviced. They're still not wonderfully serviced, but they're a little bit more positive in terms of their attitudes. But members of the uh, LGP, uh, LGBTQ plus IA community do not feel like they're able to access uh, services properly. 
And that's such an at-risk. We know the Mm -hmm. statistics there um, in terms of being at-risk for things like suicide and uh, severe mental illness, and we want to be able to provide those services. One of the areas that we've started this conversation with is about trying to ensure that when people see this picture painted the way it is in this report card, that they don't deny themselves to want to go get some help. This is where the category, I think, shines a bit of a different light on it. Because the headline here says, people who are familiar with mental health services score them higher, but still give them failing grades. So if you're familiar with the service itself and access to and confidence in, apparently it grows if indeed you've been in the churn. So maybe that goes to the optics of you know the lack of access to long-term mental health care in the country. When in fact, folks who are in give it a better grade, which I find interesting. I agree with you. Um, The other thing that I thought was really interesting from the study was adding and including an emphasis on um, substance use, uh, because that's often shuffled off and kind of thought maybe sometimes it isn't included when we're looking at mental health per se. So really talking about it as part and parcel in the same way we talk about mental health as being part of physical health, looking at things like substance use as also just being intertwined and interchangeable and equally important to address. Unfortunately, when you talk about those high-level numbers and we talk about substance abuse, there's only 44% of the country thinks that these issues regarding access to substance use, health services, is very important. That's a pretty low number. Yeah. And unfortunately... (laughs) Although we talk about stigma having decreased um, across the board in terms of some of the mental health, um, I think they're certainly within the substance use um, population. I think there's unfortunately still, you know, some shaming, some blaming, some um, not understanding the complexity of life circumstances and genetic uh, circumstances and environment that can um, lead someone to be experiencing addictions. I still think there's very much a, you know, not in my backyard, they just need to, you know, get some willpower and fix it. And of course, we know that's not the case. Well, it's certainly a massive oversimplification of a very complex issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Physiological addiction is not a matter of willpower or lack thereof. It's just extremely complicated. And you know, the the issue inside of that, though, these are also talking about people who have a dependence on whether it be cannabis or any other drug Mm -hmm. and or alcohol, is their ability and their want to get some help. So we're not talking about people suffering in silence or people who have not acknowledged their concern. We're talking about people who have been surveyed, who have been dependent on one thing or another, and the help that they're getting. So it's important to note that when people want help, hopefully we can get them help because that's the trick. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, and the reason I thought the study was interesting, not because it was groundbreaking in new information, it really confirmed what we continue to hear, but at the same time, um, like a lot of bad news or things that are complex and hard, it's really easy to just keep brushing them under the table. So this, just that little reminder of, oh, right, this is still something that needs some major focus. Um, And, you know, I mean, there's a by-election going on at the moment. There may be more elections coming up. The more you can remind people of possibly some issues that they might want to be discussing with their politicians, uh, that's never a bad thing. 
Never is. And it's never a bad thing to have you on the show. Anything else you'd like to add to, whether it be reflections on this report card or anything inside the mental wellness world before we say goodbye? No, I think, again, we have lots of people continuing to fight the good fight. I think, especially with some of the discussions on homelessness recently, we've had some wonderful uh, additional discussions about the interconnectedness of all of these systems and all of these issues. And it's not a one Band-Aid, you fix one thing and everything else is going to happen. Um, people don't set out to be homeless. People don't set out to be addicted. People don't set out to, um, you know, be unable to work due to a mental illness. This is complex. It's intertwined. It involves family history. It involves genetics. Um, and we need to be targeting it from every possible aspect. I always appreciate your time, Dr. Hubbard. Thanks for this. Oh, anytime, Patty. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Dr. Janine Hubbard, child psychologist. So very quickly before we get to the break, so some news coming from the federal cabinet retreat and the government of Canada. So there is going to be a new cap on the number of student visas associated with the federal immigration policy. So it's going to be capped at 360,000 in 2024. That's 35% less students being allowed into Canada. Curiously, uh, Housing Minister Sean Fraser has also splintered that down a little bit further. He's talking about the fact that not all international students on student visas are being are going to institutions that grant degrees. Some are simply going to uh, institutions that provide diplomas. And there's the thought that maybe some of these institutions and or schools are not necessarily doing right by immigration numbers, nor maybe doing right by some of the students that are coming here on visas. But the government's going to impose a cap of 360000 in 2024. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a Caller there wants to talk about the prices at the grocery store. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, calling regarding the uh, the 50% off at uh, Loblaws, uh, it had started here last week at the 30%. It had started at 30 Yes. Yeah, because yeah. the news story that I read this morning, and I hadn't been to Dominion since the news story broke, they said it hadn't happened in Atlanta, Canada, and nor will it happen in Atlanta, Canada. But you're saying there was 30% stickers out there. Oh, it absolutely did, because on my day off, I go to Dominion. Uh, it's a drawing card for me, really, to, like, you know, you might get your green peppers, your red peppers, 50% off. I dice them up, put them in the freezer. But last week, they were at 30%. So, well, apparently that's going to go away. They're going to go back to the 50. And, of course, like I said off the top, it's hard to know what kind of deal you're really getting because 50% of an inflated price isn't really a 50% saving necessarily. But it will be a savings for some. To what percentage? I don't know. But it's certainly going to be helpful for people who are really stressed out with uh, shopping for groceries. Absolutely, yeah. And the second piece I wanted to talk about was the uh, personal care homes. You had a caller the week before last, and you were going to follow up in regards to um, her mom went into a personal care home with some mobility issues and just a bit of personal care, but uh, ended up passing away because uh, no CPR was administered. Yeah, that's right. So when the paramedics showed up, they were quite cross that no one had attempted CPR. And this lady, I mean, I feel terrible for her. She even said, who knows what the outcome might have been had first aid and CPR been performed on her mother as she lay on the floor there in stress. So I don't know. But we have followed up to the fact with, you know, the OHS, the Occupational Health and Safety Rules, are not really all that clear, to be honest with you. It's generally left up to the 
facility itself as to whether or not they mandate or require first aid for all their employees in a care setting, which just should be the way. I have heard from people who are administrators at different homes and or people who are in the private sector in the personal care homes saying that, well, in our facility, we mandate it. It's part of it. We offer it to our employees, which they should. It shouldn't be any gray area there. That should be absolutely mandatory to work in a care home. Well, absolutely. And I mean, this was my sister, by the way. Oh. And uh, you were just talking to Janine Hubbard about uh, mental health and uh, for my niece to go up and see her mother on the floor with, with no help provided whatsoever. And actually, the paramedics were, it was the third call. It wasn't the first call. What do you mean by that? Um, first off, the manager was called. And then her daughter, who you were speaking with, was the second call. And the third call was the paramedics. Oh, so, like in, I don't know about all of them, but I know, like in those personal care homes, you do not have to have the PCA course in order to work in these homes. There's some of them who doesn't have a licensed body in them homes whatsoever. Yeah, and of course, there's different things. If you go to a a program like at CNA to get a personal care attendant diploma, you can't graduate without basic first aid, which includes CPR. You can't graduate without it, but uh, you uh, you don't have to recertify it either. That's right. And nor do you have to have a PCA diploma to get a job as a personal care attendant, which, you know, and I guess when they're stressed trying to find people to take the job in the first place, maybe just maybe they think that adding that additional mandatory requirement might make it even more difficult. But that said, I mean, and the recommendation was clear. If you are a loved one, a family member of your nana, your papa, your mom or your dad, and you're looking at care homes, you really have to ask these questions up front do your staff have first aid training in cpr and whatever else is a concern to uh, of yours because unless they offer it uh, unprovoked you probably don't even know i'm sure that that lady had no earthly idea that the folks working in the care home did not have cpr training so ask the question should be uh, it should be divulged to the family because i mean not everybody who goes into personal care homes are nannies and poppies no that's right of course not Right. So, I mean, if you're putting a loved one into a personal care home and you figure, well, you know, like they do not have a DNR on them, so they have full measures, then you, f- you think that the home is going to do what needs to be done to to make sure that they're looked after. Sure. And DNR, you mean do not resuscitate? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of people go into homes now and they have a DNR on them, so they do nothing for them. Yeah, but, but if you got full code, they have to do whatever they have to do to to uh, you know help you live as they should. So that was the follow-up that we have done. I heard from a variety of different homes, and we looked at some of the legislation that's in place. But, you know, that's an easy one for government to fix. Because if it's a level playing field across the board, then no longer will a home have the individual uh, resistance based on the inability to hire staff. It will just be part and parcel. That's it. If you're going to work in that setting, you have to have your basic first aid, which includes CPR at the end. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know that they're doing an audit on personal care homes, so maybe it's it's one of the things that should be at the forefront. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're waiting for some of that uh, work to be completed and a report filed by that committee because they were looking at a variety of things in personal care, long-term care facilities, whether it be care for folks with dementia or Alzheimer's, staffing ratios, separating couples, all those things, and maybe we could absolutely be looking at the requirements, the basic requirements for staffing. Hopefully that's part of it. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate the time this morning. All right, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right. Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a heartbreaker, you know, to hear that lady say that, you know, had there been CPR performed and quite strange to know that the third call was to the paramedics you know first to the staff then to administration and then then to the paramedics i don't know how that process is officially in place but you know you've heard me many times say things like that really do belong early in life in a school setting you know when we talk about finances how to manage your money and how to be self-sustainable regarding cooking and those types of things i mean real life skills like how to apply chest compressions in cpr what happens if someone is choking you know they what do we call it the uh, the heimlich which apparently you're not allowed to say anymore it's just some reference to the the method for trying to dislodge something stuck in someone's throat so basic stuff like that i mean there was one of the red cross awards life-saving hero awards was given out there a number of years ago one of the recipients was a kid who i think was in grade six and his uh, friend i can't remember if it was choking on something or had a vicious cut, but the young fellow knew enough to uh, take care of him on a temporary basis until they got to the hospital, the clinic, or the paramedics showed up. So maybe things like that absolutely belong in school at a young age as well, and certainly inside care facilities. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Leah's coming up to talk about homelessness, then we're going to talk about some issues on the West Coast. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Leah, you're on the air. Hi there. How are you, Patty? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Good. Good. I just wanted to talk about, I was one of the volunteers up on the hill um, at Tent City. And since leaving there, we haven't made much progress. Um, another couple of volunteers and I have spent hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars trying to help these people get situated, get put into permanent housing because they've been moved from deplorable shelter to deplorable shelter. There's so much uncertainty. Um, we have one gentleman who's an alcoholic, and I took him to housing a couple weeks ago, and he expressed to them that he's an alcoholic and he needs help. Um, and he, w- he was in tears. He was pretty much begging, and I turned to him and said, do you want me to take you to detox? And Mrs. at Houses said, no, you go to detox, you lose your bed. So these are the things. So he went to detox because he knew he had to save his life, but he left detox early because he was worried he'd be back on the street again. Yeah, that can't be a caveat. You know, if someone wants help at all the while, needs some uh, support regarding uh, a place to live, then we've got to yeah. do both at the same time. I don't know how different it's going to be inside what people are calling the transition house, which is the hotel Comfort Inn on Airport Road. With those wraparound services in place, I wonder will that also allow people to be an occupant of one of those rooms all the while getting that type of help, including some detox, while they get into some support program? Because some of those details are not really well understood. Yeah, there's a lot that is misunderstood. I mean, I have sent emails to the ministers, to the premier, and basically the only response we get is, well, there's 375 units or 375 people waiting for housing, and we only have so many units. And I said, you're totally missing the point. If you go to detox here in this province, you go for six days. When you get out of detox, you have six weeks to wait until you get into rehab. And you have to have a permanent rehab. So there's just, I don't understand. It's like the left hand, what the right hand is doing. There's miscommunication from the government all the way down. 
um, and these people are not getting any further ahead. Yeah, the issue needing a permanent address to get some of those supports is kind of missing a huge swath of the population who needs that exact help. Yeah, there's a huge disconnect. I mean, over on Janeway Place, there are eight units over there, brand new one-bedroom units. They have been sitting empty since the beginning of December. Uh, Minister Pike came up on the news last week and said, we're ready to roll out these apartments and the first person will be moving in very soon. Well, the first person had moved in a month ago. Um, One of the gentlemen from the Hill got an apartment on December 8th and was in there while all seven other units were left with the lights on and sitting empty. So if we're waiting for people, if we're waiting for housing to put people in the housing, the housing is there and waiting. Why are we not putting people in the houses? So you're saying that there are actually vacant apartments and or Newfoundland Labrador housing units that are renovated and ready to go, but no one's living in them? Yes. Because the waiting list, if I remember correctly, is something like 2,200. Yeah. Yep, and these places are sitting empty. Brand new apartments, one-bedroom apartments, sitting empty all through Christmas. It would have been pretty nice for people to be in, have their own roof over their head during Christmas. And anytime, like I, I was always a little bit confused with selecting an arbitrary date of Christmas Eve to have people moved out of a tent and into somewhere more either transition and or permanent. You know, right. we waited a long time to do some pretty basic things here. We're just now evaluating what minimum standards should look like in an emergency shelter. I mean, how could that have not always been the issue? Because, yeah. yes, you need oversight and monitoring and enforcement. But if we don't have any minimum standards, we're just arbitrarily selecting one individual or another, one issue or another to deal with with on a day-to-day basis when that can't be the case it can't be just you know at someone's whim it's got to be hard and fast rules because not only do we need to help them but we need it to be a safe place where people feel like they can go there as opposed to so many people saying no it's too dangerous there's too much drugs you know the sexual assault possibility the physical assault potential i'm not going there my goodness we've got to do better than that And that's not a liberal or a a socialist thing. That's a realistic thing. We're never going to do away with, in full, the need for emergency shelter, but it's got to be at least somewhere safe where someone can go. Yeah, I firsthand, and it's deplorable. And the amount of money these slum landlords are getting is disgraceful. Um, You know, I, I couldn't even explain to you how disgusting these shelters are. Yeah, we've heard the stories. I haven't been to one, not any of the privately owned and operated ones, even though I was given an invitation once and it just never happened. But obviously the stories are not conducive with a safe place to get in out of the elements. And I don't mean to put it as basic as that. No, definitely. Like I, when I walked in, two of the guys from the Hill were sent um, to a shelter that they were promised was renovated and, you know, washer dryer and all the things. And when I went in there, I, I said, oh, heck no. There were rats decaying in the walls. There were like they didn't have a pillow, a towel, a fork, a spoon. It, it was like they were animals. Not good enough. Leah, would you like to say anything else before I take another call? No, I just hope the government will consider people, you know, that are asking for help, crying for help. Pay attention to them. They need the government's help. In one particular, one gentleman that's crying for help with his alcoholism and is being ignored. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Leah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, of course, there will be people specifically in the airport area who have 
serious concerns. Now it's easy enough to just dismiss them by saying NIMBY, you know, the not in my backyard concept or philosophy. But there's still a lot to be understood about this approach that the government has taken with the transition housing. You know, people who are working on it, like Doug Pawson at End Homeless in St. John's and other advocates on the ground, say it's a step in the right direction, is better than what was not in place prior to that arrangement. People will be concerned about the finances, uh, the financial arrangement that's been arrived at, you know, whether or not there was an opportunity to buy. And that, I think, can be extended beyond simply the hotel on Airport Road. There's also people asking questions about the pretty expensive lease that the government's going to be paying to the owners of the old Costco building. Because they only bought it a year ago, and now it looks like there's going to be a pretty lucrative investment in commercial real estate with some government business, which is always the case. All right, uh, I'm not going to take the Eddie's call until we take the break, which is hopefully going to happen on time. But the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands, is Eddie Joyce. I'm not sure what Eddie wants to talk about, but we'll all find out right after this. Also, Lee wants to talk about the housing market, huge crunch, and Marie wants to talk about phone bills. All of that and whatever's on your mind right after the right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member for Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you again for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I called on last week about the, um, and trying to ensure that it don't happen again, the protocol for school closures on the West Coast uh, during a winter storm. Uh, last week, as we all know, it was predicted that Thursday and Friday was going to be a major storm. Uh, most places were closed except the schools. Uh, most places are closed around 10 or 11 o'clock, but the schools remained open. I had many calls from parents and teachers who were very upset, and they were wondering why the schools were kept uh, open when everything around Corner Brook and uh, the area was uh, was closing down. Um, I, I contacted some parents, and I contacted um, some people, uh, teachers, and, and they couldn't understand uh, why. Um, a lot of people said, well, the school board uh, didn't uh, make the decision, but um, since the school board has been integrated, it's the Department of Education who makes the decision. Now, there's no more school boards. Usually, there's uh, local school boards who can make that decision, but now the decision is from the Department of Education, and it's stated that there's a group out here who no one knows who the group is, who uh, who is uh, set up to make that decision, and um, no one... Uh, I'm going to be writing the minister and ask what the... Pro- Asking her what the protocol is uh, for the closure, so this so this don't uh, happen again. Uh, there was no answers from the minister or the department um, when this happened. Um, I know that some media contacted the minister; she wasn't available. There's always an alternate minister if the minister couldn't make it. And some of the statements they made uh, weren't accurate because I'm out here. I live uh, nine houses from a school, and you couldn't see three houses down, but yet the schools were open. Uh, the the other thing that happened out here was the city of Cornwall put out an advisory to stay off the roads midday on uh, on um, on Thursday, and the issue that the people I don't think people realize yet is the schools were uh, the school buses were taken off the road. The school bus program right now is under the Department of Transportation Works. It's not under the Department of Education. So the school, the transportation can make a decision to take the school buses off while the schools are still open because there's two different departments. Obviously, they, they didn't coordinate it. Uh, they, they caused a lot of stress for, for a lot of um, people, a lot of families um, who contacted me, uh, some teachers, and teachers are the ones who, who had to step up. And some of the kids actually had to be put in taxis to send home because some parents never had vehicle to get there. A lot of people scrambled to try to get to the schools to pick up their kids. Uh, there's no other way to get them home. 
And uh, when I when I read what the um, uh, sent out by, by the department talking about how the weather changed, the weather never changed. It was bad all day, all morning. It never changed. It was forecasted for a day, two days prior about what's going to happen Thursday and Friday out here. So it never changed. It's just that the decision wasn't made. So I'm I'm calling up on the Department of Education and and the, and the Department of Transportation Works to work together to get this coordinated. This this could have been much worse than than what it was. And then when you get the uh, department saying, well, by 3 o'clock when the buses were out, the students were gone. They weren't. They were still there. So there were some places the students were there up to 4 o'clock waiting to get home out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, there's a there's a disconnect there that could have been a lot worse. And so, uh, and why I'm raising this is, is that a lot of people are saying, well, why weren't they closed? People aren't sure of the protocols anymore. When you got two departments involved with the Department of Transportation Works, who who, who can call the school buses off the road, but yet the kids are still in the school. Uh, so, so it's a, it, it's a situation. And then I know a lot of the teachers um, has uh, ha, has stepped up and con- contacted me after and explained the situation that they went through. So I'm calling upon these two departments to get together, set a protocol that everybody understands the protocol. Who's making the decision to close the school? If that was St. John's, that would be closed the day before. Absolutely. That's how bad the weather was out here, and it was predicted for days to be that bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether or not the ministers responsible on either side are intimately involved in day-to-day operational decisions, I don't know. But, they've, of course, they've made it feel more political because they've absorbed the, uh, the NLEST and now rebranded into the department proper. So that just, you know, the optics alone will make people believe that these decisions come from ministers. But it just should be automatic. If the buses are coming off the road at lunchtime, then the students are being on the last run at lunchtime to go home. Yeah. You know, it, it, if, even if there's some sort of left-hand, right-hand not knowing what each other is doing, fundamental issues like that should not be complicated. So if the buses aren't running, then the schools aren't open. The end. Uh, I agree. And then uh, to be proactive, and if you look at all the um, the announcements on the weather from a- any station you look at, Environment Canada, there was a major storm coming Thursday and Friday. Yep. It should have been done that um, that Wednesday that the schools were closed. They were closed Friday. They closed Friday because of what happened Thursday. And and my my point on all this is, is that no one out here, the parents, the teachers, they don't know the protocol. Is there someone in Cornerbrook who's making uh, that decision um, and part of the Department of Education as have they given that authority now because the, the, the group uh, that's making is under the Department of Education do they have to get clearance from St. John's no one understands the protocol and when you've got Department of Transportation works taking the buses off the road without notifying the people the parents and that and by the way your kids are still in school or buses are off the road there's a disconnect yeah there is okay. and we'll try to help uh, figure that one out Eddie because you know we're due f- to revisit some conversation with various ministers that would include education which of course is on the top of my pile all the time I appreciate the call this morning on the topic Eddie and then Betty I, I just want to thank the teachers that, that helped out so much I know a lot of them and I know a lot of them where you can get ready to order food for supper and that's, that's how serious they thought it was. So I'm just, I'll am just i be writing the minister and find out what the protocol is, and, and please, God, it won't happen again. This time we we, we, we got through with it without any major incidents, any injuries. So I just want to ensure that, that the kids are safe from school. Appreciate this. Thanks. Uh, thank you. You're welcome, Eddie. Bye-bye. Eddie Joyce, independent member, Humber Bay of Islands. Let's go to line number one. Lee, you're on the air. Uh, I'm just calling in response to this housing conversation. Sure. Oh, like... 
it, it, it's boiling my blood half the things. I, okay, for one, I am, I've spent the last year on being homeless. I had an apartment, and my landlord got his panties in a knot and changed my locks overnight and threw me out, threw away everything I owned. I ended up on the street for four nights. This was in January of last year, and I could not get a hold of the emergency shelter people. I called and called and called and called and called and called, and no answer. That No one would answer. Finally, when I did get them, they told me to bunker down for the night because they don't put people anywhere in, in the night, only in the day, during the day. So uh, the next day, they did get me into a hotel. When I got to the hotel, I lost, you lose your income. You lose your check. So... I, I, you, they only give you 30 bucks a week to live on. So then I'm in the hotel for a good year. Uh, I'm on a wait list of housing support. I don't hear from nobody. I found my own place after a year. I found my own place. So then I, I call, I get on a wait list because they're supposed to help me to, to get curtains, towels, stuff like that so I can have stuff, some stuff in my place. I've had my own place since the middle of November. I'm still waiting for them to call me. Okay, I go down behind the Salvation Army because they throw stuff out. I get in their dumpster, and they call the cops. But guess what? I found myself some curtains. I, I got myself some stuff, but it's all being thrown away, and we're all, you've got so many people here in need. They're the people who you, you say got boots on the ground and are getting stuff done at bull, I call BS. Ain't nobody getting nothing done. What? And... I'm still, like I said, I've yet to get a call back for someone to even bring, help me out with something in my house. Call back from who? From uh, emergency shelter or the housing support worker. She, they, they tell me I'm on a wait list for towels and blankets and, and stuff like that. And silverware. As far as they're concerned, I'm sitting in my house right now and I don't have a, 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 a dish or a fork or spoon, nothing. And then like, you go down to the Salvation Army, and they just the stuff that they throw away in the dumpster, and then they get so they call the cops because you're in the dumpster and you're not supposed to be. Have you tried to go in the door and ask for it before they throw it away? No, no. Like okay, so uh, yes, I, I, I say no, but yes, I have. I've approached them and said like so. Like, do you have, do people pay to take your garbage? Or like, is there any way like I can work out a deal where I'll come and take like you know take everything out of the dumpster because it's ridiculous the stuff gets thrown away. But no, they always tell me no. They have their own little whatever going on. Now, the other day I was pulling up behind there and somebody was there dropping off furniture. They don't sell furniture. So what was going going on? The lady that works there was going to take it home. But I pulled up and I said, you know, I could really use that dresser. So they they gave it to me. And then the lady that works there took the bed home because I didn't need that. But it's really, really sickening to know that there's that many people out there looking for help and waiting for help and crying for help. And these people are like dumpster full, dumpster loads. Like I got a pair of boots out of there the other day with the price tag still on them. $199.99 marked down to $99.99. I mean, there's lots of places around where people can repurpose all kinds of stuff, furniture included. I don't know why something would end up in a dumpster as opposed to a thrift store or Absolutely. You know, home again furniture or whatever the case may be. They're not even looking through it. You can tell because there's like you, there's stuff. You can tell they're not even going through it because it's still folded. There's bags that they haven't even untied. You know. Oh my. Anyway, I hope you're doing okay. And if you're looking for a call back, maybe that just speaks to just how many people are on that list waiting for calls back. So the unit that you have but since... I should have no, been first. Uh, I've been on that list for over a year. Well, I don't right? know how long everyone else has been on the list, uh, but it well, certainly seems like there's an awful lot of demand. 
The housing support worker told me that I was on the top of the list. I okay. was one of the first people. So it doesn't make no sense that I have they haven't called and and you know they haven't called even to find out how you're doing kind of thing. Right? All but but what they do is if the minute you go in to get help from them, you no longer get your check, which don't make no sense because if social assistance isn't paying the rent, why can't they still just give you your bit of money for food and stuff for the week? I appreciate the and time. Not, I not, hope not like I don't, don't want to work. Okay. I'm waiting to get back into school, and it's, it's jobs are hard to come by around certain places. What kind of schooling are you trying to get? Uh, I was going to do electricians, but it's not offered where I'm staying anymore, so I'm going into early childhood education. I wish you good luck. I appreciate your time this morning. Take good care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, and that was the last word. Marie, hopefully you have time to join us tomorrow when we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.